tuned to another edition of Canada FM, the show that takes deep dives into Canadian bands that maybe didn't quite uh, have as much success outside of Canada as they did within our continental borders. I'm Ted. Brian here. That's right. Get your shit together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna, uh, go ahead. Well, you know I like, before you like to dive right into it, I like a little bit of preamble, so I, I was reading up about Woodstock 99 today. Okay. Complete- oh, what, what does this have to do with our episode? I'm getting to it. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me. See, you're always so quick to interrupt. You know, for a guy who's worked in radio for the better part of like a decade and a half, you think you would learn the skills of interviewing and conversation. When have you ever known me to be a patient person? That's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like today. Anyway. This mug kept me waiting 26 minutes to start the podcast. Because this dipshit <laughs> can't press a simple record button, so now this is take two. It is take two. It is take two. But one thing's got nothing to do with the other. <sighs> yeah. I was punctual for the first one. You can scowl at me all you want. You know, the one's got nothing to do with another, and you got I no legs to stand on. I was punctual for the first one. Oh, the first one. The very first podcast we ever did. Seven episodes ago! No, the first time we did this. Anyway, let me finish my story about Woodstock 99. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize how much Canadian content was actually there. There was five artists. Oh, yeah, that's just main stage. There was, well, there was Serial Joe at the emerging artist stage. Can I give you... I was listening to Serial Joe before we, uh... Jumped on the air here. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Had a conversation online about Serial Joe, and, well, I I got the knack. (laughs) But yeah, it was Serial Joe, obviously Atlantis, The Hip, uh, Big Sugar, and there was a fifth one that, oh, Our Lady Peace. Yeah. I didn't realize that uh, there, because there was, the whole weekend was overshadowed by so much uh, shitstorm with Limp Bizkit and Chili's and Metallica and... Yeah, because I think Our Lady Peace went on right before all that started. Yeah, yeah. They, the got a, started. they had a night gig. And I think that they went on like early Saturday evening, like when the sun's just going down. And then Limp Biscuit and the Chili's went on a little bit later. And things got a little well, Chili's were Sunday crazy. night. Uh, Chili's was Sunday night. Uh, the hip started the day Saturday afternoon in the, like I think probably around one or two. Yeah. Um, and Serial Joe was off on the emerging artist stage, so nobody really cared. But uh, I think I'm gonna see if I can. <laughs> you want to do this right now? <laughs> Me too. So I'm gonna cut this out. Relax. <laughs> oh no, you're wrong. Alanis Morissette was right before Limp Bizkit. Oh, okay. I'm wrong. All I said was that the Our Lady Peace <laughs> went on at night before all the shit went down. Doesn't necessarily yeah, mean I'm wrong. You were wrong about when Our Lady Peace played. Jesus! No, that, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. I said they went on at night. What kind of rude bastard are you? You're wrong. <laughs> Think I remember? It's from 1999. But one up you, though. I got to interview... Both Gordy Johnson from Big Sugar and Duncan Coots from Our Lady Peace, and both interviews I made sure to ask them about their experience at Woodstock '99. I no longer have access to those interviews, which uh, <laughs> kind of stinks. But if I could get access to them, oh, you know, I'd, I'd have them on the show. God, no, we're sounding low rent. Hey, 
Why don't we move on to a band that was not low rent at all? Hold on, hold on. Except for their music the whole, videos. My whole, my whole segue is, you know, one <laughs> band who was not at Woodstock 99, oh, the Moffats. <laughs> Jesus. Well, the Moffats probably weren't going to get wristbands to get in there. They weren't even drinking age. I know. Yeah. But yeah, they were not at Woodstock 99. <laughs> they were too busy not winning Junos, but getting nominated for a bunch of Junos that year. Yes, this week's episode is about Canada's answer to Hanson, the Moffats. And or as Ted likes to say, the fucking Moffats. Fucking Moffats. The, realize, the reason I call them the fucking Moffats is when you hit an age where the puberty has set in and... As my dad would say to me when he tried to give me the birds and the bees dress and I I wouldn't listen to him, your interest in girls skyrockets. Sometimes the hunky guys that all the girls have uh, crushes on, even if they're celebrities, turn into your enemies. (laughs) And that's kind of how I viewed the Moffats back in the eighth grade. Even though I never met any of them and they never really did anything bad to me personally. It's just what happens when you're a moron preteen. You know, when whenever my parents tried to give me heartfelt lessons or like the birds and the bees talks or my, my dad would never say two words to me about anything emotional in the house. It was always in the car when I was trapped and my mom tried to give me. <laughs> she gave me a talk about racial inequality in the car. She gave me a talk about the birds and the bees. <laughs> I'm like. This is making me uncomfortable. I can't get out. Man, maybe my dad should have done the uh, lesson from uh, your parents because uh, he said, Ted, uh, later today we're going to have to have a talk. And I, for whatever reason, just because I'm like the utter optimist, I literally thought. What, you thought I, you were going to get candy? I, I thought I was going to get a present or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought nothing but wonderful things were going to come from this talk. And they start talking. And I realized what he was doing. And I was like, no, 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 that's enough. That's enough. Well, you can ah. you can learn from Ma and Pa last. And when you have a kid, you can do the, the birds and the bees talks in the car. And when they try to get out, you'd be like... And just lock them in. Yeah, I've already decided what I'm going to do for my kids for that. For that, I'm going to sit them down. I'm going to have them watch the uh, Netflix animated series Big Talk. Uh, not Big Talk. Big Mouth. There it is. A show all about preteens getting hitting puberty, and it's the best. Basically, the best learning about uh, the birds and the bees you could possibly get at that age because it's real, man. It's real. The cartoons, but it's real. So that's yeah, what my kids are going to do. I'm going to let other people do the talk for me. That sounds about right. <laughs> could be a far better parent than that. <laughs> Regardless, let's start with some parents here. How about Frank and Darlena Moffitt? They what were segue. Uh, yeah, they're up there in uh, Whitehorse, Yukon, which I believe is a first for uh, Canada FM in terms of where bands are from. And uh, one evening in the summer of 1982, maybe the Aurora Borealis were shining, but they decided to have sex. The product- yeah, that's what married people do. Speaking of birds and the bees, do I need to tell you how it works? The product of that sex was lead singer and guitar player Scott Moffat. And they didn't waste too long after Scott either. Eleven months later, out came Dave and Bob and Clint, the triplets, and the Moffats were formed. Probably the most natural start to a band that we'll ever cover on Canada FM. Yeah, because they're all in the house being musical together and it's 
parents would probably be like, just get him some instruments and keep him occupied and out of my face. Well, when you have four boys, especially four boys that age, you know, you got to think something for them to do together. And jamming's fun. You know, me and my brother didn't matter how mad that we were at each other. We'd go down to the basement. We'd jam. We'd feel a lot better. And uh, I'm sure that they had a happy upbringing bringing through that. Uh, we talked about. Go ahead. I was going to say, you have a much more better relationship with your brother. My brother and I got boxing gloves when I was 10 and he was 15 (laughs) because my parents were like, you guys fight too much. And they got us a punching bag. That's how bad it was. I was going to say, it's not very good. Not a very fair fight for your parents. Like, yes, you are very much taller than your brother, but you weren't when you were 10. So I I was much ganglier when I was 10. He had the reach. (laughs) He had a little more oomph on the punches. It's not a fair fight. He had those gorilla arms. Yeah. Jeez, Mon Pa last. Maybe they wanted you to be like one of those gritty underdogs. You're just going to take a beating <laughs> from Steve for years, and then one day you're just going to hit him with a left. A surprise like Rocky left. and Drago. Yeah. Oh, and just, you know, there, there you go. There's the underdog story. Uh, <laughs> these guys weren't really an underdog story, though, because by the time they were four years old, they had already recorded... Their very first song. The family had moved down from Whitehorse to Edmonton, and at the West Edmonton Mall, they all went into a recording studio there. And uh, they decided to cover the song Grandpa by the Judds at a public studio at the West Edmonton Mall, and their love affair with country music was born, and uh, they effectively had, had a demo. You know, I actually listened to the song Grandpa by the Judds while I was waiting for you, just kind of uh, yeah. dotting a few I's and crossing a few T's of research that I hadn't done yet. Uh, it's kind of a corny one. Uh, but it, the, the premise is, basically, it's actually really sad when you realize what's going on. First, you're like, this is a cornball, you know, country song. It's a little girl asking her grandpa about, like, the old days and everything like that. And then you realize the little girl's parents are going through a divorce. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. So it's a little bit grim. A little bit a little bit of a downer to make your demo to. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it's almost a bit of foreshadowing. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I know where you're going with it. It is a little <laughs> bit of shades of things to come. Hey, Brian, we had a 50-50% outcome here for what would happen with uh, Frank and Darlena's marriage. And, uh, you know, we just happened to give it away that, yeah, they'd end up getting a divorce. But that's, that's further down the line. Now, right. so together with their parents, the boys started playing shows as a family band in and around their new home of Victoria, British Columbia. Their debut was on the Timmy's Springtime Telethon in 1988. You know, I used to remember when, uh, like, CTV and places like that, or even CHCH, would show telethons during the day. I, I loved it. You know, they they just go off about sick kids. That that depressed the hell out of me. But what was interesting? I remember one I'm time I got a little older. teddy on the couch. Better you than me. When I got older, this one woman was like, "There's nothing more serious than third degree burns, especially on the, as a child." And I went, "Nope," and I left the room. <laughs> oh, but. It was a little too much for me to take. But they always had wacky, very low-rent, D-list celebrities that would appear on uh, on the telethon. So, uh, Why didn't yeah, you just change the channel cool. instead of running out of the room? Oh, probably because the remote was on the other side of the room and I didn't want to be bothered. That's my best uh, explanation for that. So you'd get up and leave the room, but not get up and get the remote? <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's the thing. If, if there was something scary on TV, 
Yes, it's quicker to leave the room to be away. I'm not calling burn victims scary. What I'm trying to say is, if there's something scary that's on TV and I want to get out of there and away from it, it's quicker to just get off my seat and run than it is to go look for the remote to change the channel because then that scary thing might be on TV. Again, not singling out burn victims. You are not scary. You're beautiful. It's okay. (laughs) Oh, Ted. Say, don't you have a story about a celebrity to bail me out of this one? Well, who's your, well, I guess, who? first of all, who's your favorite uh, celebrity that you remember seeing on any of these crappy telephones? Any old hockey players or okay. someone, local celebrities, like no, uh, was, the guy was, that does it, the it, news for CH or something? Or Nicholas Piccolis from Video well, Arcade Top 10? That, that, was, that was always neat, and I did get to see Nicholas Piccolis get his hair cut <laughs> once, which was way better than seeing Nicholas Piccolis on any, uh, uh, what's called, telethon. Um, actually, I know what you were trying to do there, but it got me off on another thing. There was this uh, ventriloquist that always used to come on. He was a black guy, and he had a little, I forget his name, he's a world-famous ventriloquist. I can't remember his name, he's a black fella. And uh, he'd do the bit where he'd have his little guy, like Roger or whatever his name was, and he'd talk to when he goes, he had this whole bit about Roger was going to spy on the mafia for the FBI, and they hid Roger in the bass violin case. And he goes, "What happened when they opened up the bass violin case?" He goes, "Oh, I looked at them and I went." It's a pretty good dummy uh, ventriloquist bit. Anyway, I, li- I like that guy. That guy would get all the. I only know one ventriloquist, Jeff Dunham, and that's enough. This guy's way funnier than Jeff Dunham. Well, I never said Jeff Dunham was funny. I just said that's enough ventriloquist people to know. I, I really feel bad constantly calling this guy black ventriloquist. So I need to look him up. Let's just see. There's the guy. Willie Tyler. Uh. Willie Tyler and Lester. Willie Tyler and Lester. I always liked him when he'd come on uh, the telethons and stuff like that. Good deal of celebrity, Willie Tyler and Lester. Yeah. Yeah, a good pair. A terrible name for a dummy. <laughs> what do you want to call it? Peaches? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Rockford? I got nothing. You could have named it Dom fucking Deloise for all I care. Why would you Isn't name... Lester? When you're doing a comedy act, why would you name your ventriloquist dummy after a person who's already famous? It's Brian Last and his dummy, Brad Pitt. Although was gonna he sell dead anything. by then? Oh, Dom DeLuise? No, Dom yeah. DeLuise didn't die until the like early 2000s. Oh. <laughs> he lived a lot longer than you're giving him credit for. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been like mid to late 2000s. Anyway. All right. Who did you... Uh, have you had any... Have you had any weird celebrity encounters recently? Uh, well, it's hard to have encounters with people in the in COVID, but um, I, I'm 99% sure I ran into Jared Kiso on the street when I was getting donuts. 99%? Like him. He, I mean, I was like, we were we sparked up a conversation. I was visiting Kitchener, and I'm, I'm not from there, but neither is he. He just said, I'm from, I'm from Listowel, and kind of... And it was percolating that he already kind of looked like him, had that same jaw shape, same mouth shape, just he was wearing sunglasses. And his, his lady friend was going in to get some donuts, and I was like, you look like that guy from Letterkenny. And he said he was from Listowel, that's where he's from. So he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, I went to school with that guy, he's a good guy. And I was like, huh. 
But I mean, like, I didn't bother him. I didn't press. If I, if I met the guy, then he was a nice guy. And if I didn't meet him, then I met his dead ringer. Well, it's, it's, it's a pretty good gig, though, to do that. If you are famous and someone recognizes you, you don't want to be bothered. Yeah, but I know him. He's a good guy. Yeah. He saw my autograph. No, I'm a jerk. <laughs> but yeah, he's a good guy. I'm not taking a picture with you. Forget it. See, I could never get away with that because I'm almost seven feet tall. So if I was ever famous, I'd be able to easier to pick out than a hockey puck in a snowstorm. Yeah, unless you're in the U.S., then they put a blue dot around you. Anyway. Um, what a dated reference on the techno puck. Where was I? Oh, yeah, 1988, the Spring Telethon. Yeah, they, they <laughs> appeared on that. Uh, and then between that and 1992, the family would perform at several outdoor country music uh, festivals. And during that time period, they were nominated for five British Columbia Country Music Association Awards, which isn't too bad. It's really impressive that uh, country really is. I, I like to think that country is almost the biggest subgenre. That's not on like mo- like just standard pop radio because I, f- I feel like it's bigger than hip hop in terms of the support and the community. There's so many people that just love it and just get so much. Uh, yeah, spread. it's it, the reason it's the the, it, the weird thing about it is just how segregated it is from the rest of music. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, there are far more other crossover hits uh, from hip-hop, from this, from that, uh, that would get played on Top 40 radio than yeah. country. Country, you sometimes get that more alt- adult contemporary hit that'll cross over. Like, like, Faith Hill had a bunch in the 90s. You know what I mean? You sometimes yeah. get that. Like, but for the M&M most part, is- it's it's an island to itself. It's it's weird. Yeah, like Eminem, Run the Jewels, all these hip-hop bands get played on, like, The Edge and Indie 88 in Toronto. Yeah, that's true. You'll even find rock stations that are going to play them. Yeah, but no one's doing that with country, yet they have insane album sales, big festivals like that boots and hearts shit or the how goes about, on for like three days the have a lot country jamboree which i met too went to and met quite a few big time country performers like who uh george canyon um who else did i meet leanne rhymes how about that you Beat actually that met smart leanne guy. Rimes? i had my picture taken with her what yeah, yeah. leanne rhymes how about that you're Mr. Posting Everything, and you never posted this? This is a terrible picture! Yeah, most of your pictures are. That never stopped you before. So here's what happened, okay? Follow Ted on social media. All of his photos are him with a beer can or terrible, like, <laughs> beards and sports clothes. That's all his photos are. I think I was wearing my, like, pillbox Pittsburgh Pirates hat in this picture, too. <laughs> of course you were. Uh, but no, it's, so it, was, it was, like, the second night, and because I was working it for the radio station I was working at, we got, like, all-access tickets. So we'd go literally wherever we wanted and like i couldn't go upstairs and jump around with the bands but anything else was game um and so leanne rhymes is one of the performers and they had this area that only people who had my access could get into where you could be like there was no like you're beyond the security guards you're in right. this little pathway right by the stage and so i watched during the shows and some people would kind of get their phones out or they have someone take a picture and they'd stand there with their hand out like this just to see if they'd come and eventually the, the singer would come and uh, you know mug with the camera with them and give them a high five and talk to them and stuff so leanne rhymes is playing and I, I i barely know any of her songs I, i'm there just for work basically but she's she's yeah. a big star she's a big deal right 
He's a big star. He's a big star. So I'm like, well, wouldn't it be cool if I got a picture with uh, Leanne Rimes? So I run over there, hand out, and sure enough, Leanne Rimes comes running into the stage. So I'm like, oh, shit. So I grabbed her, and I'm pointing up at her like get closer. this. Uh, so I, I grab her hand. Like, she puts the hand out, and I'm pointing up to her like this. Like, ah, Leanne Rimes. Take the picture. But this is still, like, 2008. So the the person who took my photo had a film camera. So I had to wait for it to get developed. And when it got developed, they saw the picture. And Leanne Rimes, she's standing there waving at the camera. looks great. And I'm pointing up at her. But my finger is literally <laughs> right. It looked like it was right inside the nostril. Like, <laughs> I was ready to shoot out the other side of my nose. It totally looked like I was picking my nose. Now, nowadays, I wish I still had that picture. But at the time, I really had like a five-minute decision. Do I take this picture home with me as, for the memory, or do I uh, just leave it? And I left it. My own vanity, leaving this picture that I still tell people about all the time. But yes, See, I, I met Leanne Rimes. I, you're so vain, but... You also just love, you're such a ham that, uh, bad picture or not, I feel like you'd still post it anyway, just because you're like, look at this, I've met another celebrity. Yeah, I'm better no, than totally. If, if I still, it's a regret. If I still had it, I would, totally would have posted it by now. It'd probably be in my little, remember you gave me that frame of me with Norm, you, before, okay, so before I moved away, uh, Brian gave me this little friendship frame, which was very nice of you, and uh, of the pictures that he chose to put in there, one was of me with Norm MacDonald, one was of me with Angelo Moore from Fishbone, and uh, those are the only two celeb pics, because those are the only high-profile celebrities I have pictures with, but uh, yeah, it would have been really cool if I had the Leanne Rimes one to go with it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There's my little Leanne Rimes story. Anyway, nice story. As you can tell, Leanne Rimes did not make her bucks in country music by performing in Victoria, British Columbia. Where'd she make them? Nashville. Yeah, but you know what's kind of a, a place that a bunch of little twelve-year-olds aren't ready for because of all the whiskey <laughs> and bourbon. Yeah, Nashville. So, <laughs> so Frank and Darlena decided, hey, here's the deal. We'll conquer the world by going to the Ned Flanderized version of Nashville, Bronson, I mean, Branson, Missouri. Play the clip, Brian. Here we are, Branson, Missouri. No, Pelly, this is Bronson, Missouri. Mm, me. Well, how do we get to Branson? Number 10 bus. Hey, Ma, how about some cookies? No dice. This ain't over. Ah, there you go. (laughs) 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 But this is where the big headway came for the Moffats. Somehow, and I, I still have not been able to figure out what Frank's, you know, what kind of strings he was pulling in the back, but he had connections. And one of the connections was the Osmond family. And they invited the Moffat family to perform with the Osmond family at the Osmond Theater as part of a partnership between the two families that last the next several years. Talk about a match made in heaven there. Now, things really picked up for the Moffats in 1993 when the family moved to the country music capital of the world. That's right, Nashville, Tennessee. And they became regulars on the TNN show. And I'm not talking about the Nashville Network or Spike TV. The Nashville Network show. Nashville Now, hosted by 
Charlie Chase. Live from Music City, USA. It's Nashville now. <laughs> You're doing this big Michael Buffer esque like hype up, like it's a, like I'm supposed to like. Wow, they were on Charlie. <laughs> Who the fuck is Charlie Chase? Yeah, Charlie Chase is kind of like the because uh, we talked about how country music for like the music scene is kind of on an island. Well, on that island, they have a Tonight Show, and that Tonight Show is hosted by Charlie Chase. He's got a mustache. He hosts. All, he used to back in the '90s host all these country music shows, and uh, usually wouldn't get the same kind of guests unless it was like Garth Brooks or like a huge country star that uh, some of the other networks uh, would get. Like I remember he used to have a show called Crook and Chase with Christine Crook, and uh, I remember one episode they had Dave Couille on years before after Full House had ended and. Kouye gave them a hockey jersey. They're just talking about hockey the whole time. They were talking about full outs. <laughs> then I remember one time. He had nothing better to promote. He's just like, hey, how's, uh, how's full house going? We've been off the air for four years. I have nothing better to do with my time. This is just how I tell the public I'm still alive. Yeah, and of course, it's Charlie Chase. What do you think he knows about hockey? There was no uh, Nashville Predator yet. He was like, oh, hockey. I saw the girls there. They have those little sticks in there. Run around. That's the hockey. Right? <laughs> that was Charlie Chase. Um, <laughs> one time I fucking threw in Morty Seinfeld's on there. He's like, you had very good writers. Very good writers. And I was like, you know what? I'll pass. I wonder if he told Charlie Chase to eat a plum. <laughs> Kept him healthy. I'll eat a plum. The other thing I remember about the Nashville Network, aside from Charlie Chase, was the old uh, comedy sketch show Yeehaw. Did you ever watch Yeehaw? No. Can't say <laughs> Again, it's country music's version of Saturday Night Live. But it was very rapid fire, very fast paced. You remember The Simpsons? They did that parody of Yeehaw? What was it called? Oh, um, that's the one where Homer was Glorilene's manager, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. What was that one called? Oh, shit. Um,. And I used to be Mr. Simpson's Encyclopedia. Yeah. Fuck, I'm going to have to Google this one. Yeah, I don't remember. But it was basically the same thing. Very rapid fire. It was actually much more like laughing than Saturday Night Live because the jokes just kept coming and everyone was in like a weird character already. Um, but yeah, that was. I remember the one joke that they parodied on The Simpsons was the two hillbillies standing next to each other. He's like, I caught my wife in bed with my best friend. You better. Bit him too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then they'd play some country music. So those are my memories of the Nashville network. Did you come More up than with I the, got. Did you come up with the parody yet? What's it called? I, I'm Googling it right now. It's um Oh, it's called Yahoo. Yahoo, okay. So they're pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close to Yeehaw. Yeah. I thought it was Yahoo, but I was like, is it? That's at first I thought it was too obvious. And also it was years before the search engine came around, so you know. Yahoo doesn't no, sound too, too much like a hootenanny like it used to. Anyway, uh, later that October, because we're talking, they're on there with, you know, Charlie Chase, and he's, uh, <laughs> who's the oldest one? Well, you're, you look just like the <laughs> other three here. He's doing his interviews. Uh, in October, the family would move from Nashville to Vegas, and they joined the cast of Country Tonight, this big country music variety show that would uh, perform at the Aladdin Hotel. And then it eventually went on the road. And when it went on the road, the Moffats went with them. And eventually it landed in Branson, where the Moffats were from. So this is kind of cool. The Moffats went from Whitehorse 
to Edmonton, to Victoria, to Branson, to Nashville, to Las Vegas, back to Branson. That's a I'm lot before you... Man. Well, it's a lot before you turn 10 years old. And this is over how many years? This is... Like, within two? That's crazy. Two years between the two Branson stops, and uh, yeah... They got around that you know, uh, the country music circuit. I know they're not they're har- hardly the high profile child stars of the '90s like your Macaulay Culkins or your Raven Simones, but mm-hmm. uh, that kind of instability. Now I was a psych major in university, but that type of instability can't be good. No wonder these kids are probably a weird. <laughs> they seem pretty well adjusted now, but that's also a part of the episode that uh, we'll get into. Yeah. Uh, now, the band at this point had not released an album yet, but that was all about to change between 95 and 96, because between that two-year period, they'd released three albums. It's a Wonderful World that was released on June 20th on Mercury Polygon Records, the self-titled Moffat's album, which was released in October, and a self-produced Christmas album. I don't know when it came out, but I'm guessing it was around Christmas. Now, only one of those albums, the middle one, the self-titled, made any sort of impact on uh, the charts. Um, Strangely enough, it did not chart in Canada, but it did reach number 44 on the U.S. country charts and number 14 on the Heat Seeker charts, which are basically just designed to cover up and coming and developing bands. And, you know, they hadn't hit puberty yet. So, yeah, they were they were developing. Three singles were released from that album. I think she likes me. Guns of Love, which they actually got to perform on Good Morning America. And the classic, Brian, The Caterpillar Crawl. Now, I vividly remember this. There was a YTV show. I can't remember what the what it was called, but it was these two, three hosts and there were these women and they're all in like their mid twenties and they would just go off on, it was just boy bands and girl bands, pop, 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 pop. And a lot of like European stuff, it was Canadian show, but a lot of European stuff. And they would act like they were such huge fans of this music, which I always thought was weird because someone who's 25 shouldn't be like in love with the Moffats or talking about which member of NSYNC they wanted to marry. You know, and it was just a little weird for grown women to be acting like that. It was, but I mean, you've worked in radio and you've worked for country stations and stuff where you got to act like you like that shit. I couldn't do that. I'd be like, here's some more bourbon soap garbage for you. Coming up, some inbred trash. Okay. I get fired in my first shift. But here's the thing. You got to sell it, but you also want to leave with your dignity. You know what I mean? And yeah. they, they, they kind of let their dignity on the table. Unless they were, like, really in love with Joey Fatone. I have no idea. They could be. It was about their I age. I guarantee you, in this new era, like, well, not new era, but in the uh, eight, eight, nine years ago when One Direction was coming up, yeah. there probably wasn't a radio host, a female radio host, that probably wasn't making flirty eyes at uh, any of them. Except for the ones that people don't care about. I'm sure that the, the radio hosts that were in their like mid to late 20s into their 30s would realize that eh, they got a little too flirty with these kids who are like 15 years old. Eh, there could be some trouble for them. That's like I said, you have to leave. You have to sell the artist, but leave with your dignity. That's the key. Anyway, 
on this show, they did a big profile of the Moffats. And this was right in the middle of my, the fucking Moffats are my enemy kind of face. You know <laughs> what I mean? And I yeah. remember watching it, and they played the video for the Caterpillar Crawl. And I think you saw some of this video. Um, what were your memories of seeing the childhood Moffats? I, I never saw, well, sorry. I didn't see the Caterpillar Crawl. I saw three seconds of I Think She Likes Me. Oh, is that She Likes my- Me? Yeah, the, they're wearing these stupid turtlenecks. They had like mullets. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, click. They start singing. I was like, nope. I just chucked my phone. I'm like, I'm going to go find something else to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the cat. Couldn't do it. In the Caterpillar Crawl video. You got to remember, it, it's, at this point, it's Scott. He is the lead singer of the band, and they're like his backup singers. He's, he's Archie Bell, and they were the Drells. Okay. <laughs> and in this, they've got their. It was more like sweatsuits. Like they had these green, like, s- turtlenecks with matching sweatpants. And they're doing these little dances like this because I think they wanted the Caterpillar Crawl to be like the next Macarena or something like that. You know what I mean? There's steps to it and everything like that. There's an animated Caterpillar going through the screen. Uh, my best image of them is uh, the best compare- visual comparison I compare to what the Moffats looked like as kids was like uh, the episode of the Simpsons where Marge uh, gets them to cancel Itchy and Scratchy for being too violent and they come back with the really really PG Itchy and Scratchy the violated people and the eyelashes and the big smiles (laughs) that was what the Moffats looked like it was just too much and they interview Scott about the Caterpillar Crawl and he's like it's a very fun dance to do and I was like ah, I got you I got you Moffitt I gotta tell everybody about this no one's gonna like your music anymore not after those humble beginnings and little did I know no one really cared <laughs> because that's not what they were listening to now it's because this was all so long before like pre YouTube pre any of the stuff like yeah occasionally they might air some Oh, this is the Moffats before, and this is them now. But they're, it's it's like um, just celebrity culture in the eighties and nineties. So it's yeah. much easier to bury back then. <laughs> Not everything's on smartphones and YouTube, and so people can hide their salacious past. Yeah, or in this case, their lame cornball past. <sighs> Corny would be a compliment. Let me put it that way. To the early days of the Moffats, it was. Uh, you know what? I, I'd be more intimidated by the uh, the kids responsible for the kids bop compilations than I would be of the Moffats when they were. Although, what would you take these huh? little these little these little dorks who have no control over their you know their parents dress them because yeah. they're little, <laughs> or these freaking grown up Melvins that just come off as such posers trying to like look at me with my long hair and my white shirts and then the other guy that looks like remember the store Stitches? Yeah, I remember the Stitches. You shopped at Stitches. Don't act like you didn't shop there. No, I know, but I'm just saying the bass player looked like he everything he got was at Stitches. And then the one looked like everything you got was at Foot Locker. And then... Uh, that, that, maybe know. they got sponsored at a young age. It's probably just where they went back to school shopping, Brian. All right, you guys <laughs> pick one store each. We'll load off on stuff. That'll last you through winter. That's probably what it was. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. In 96, a major milestone occurred in the boys' lives. And Brian already spoiled it for you. Yes, Frank and Darlena filed for divorce. And they'd live with their dad after this. And uh, he actually managed the band through 2001. 
Now, just as a major change was occurring in their lives, the boys realized that their music needed to make a few changes as well. One, they decided to pivot away from country and focus on making pop music that would fit into the teeny bopper scene at the time that was becoming incredibly popular. And two, they decided that they were going to learn how to play instruments which they had never done before in their entire lives. They might have had some piano guitar lessons here, but they were going to go all in on this because, aside from Hanson, there weren't many of these, you know, teeny bopper bands that were playing their own instruments. So there was a bit of a way to separate themselves from everybody else. All the pop bands had those stupid headphone microphones because they had to worry about the dancing. I wonder, do you think that the Moffats ever tried the dancing? with, Or is it just that the Caterpillar Crawl brought in so many bad memories of trying to make a dance phenomenon take off that they just decided to ditch it all together? They learned their lesson young. I picture some Japanese going, guy coming up to them, you'll bring us great shame. And they're like, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Where the fuck did that come from? I don't know. It's just a, off the top of my noodle. Okay. But I don't know. No, chances are it's probably just uh, they're like when they they got their own the freedom of choice. They were like, I don't want to do this. I want to actually play something and be a proper band, not a boy band. Well, to their credit, they, they were serious about this and they took two years off of the music scene and they moved back to Canada. And the big return happened on May 18th, 1998, with the release of Chapter One, A New Beginning, which was a very appropriate title. Now, this is an immediate smash hit in our home and native land. It earned them double platinum status. It peaked at number 49 on the album charts. It's also said to be one of the best selling albums of that time on the black market in Thailand. And believe me, Don't think that we're done talking about Thailand. We've barely scratched the surface. The Moffats had quite an impact of all places in Thailand. Stay tuned. Ted will tell you some of his tales with some ladyboys in Thailand. (laughs) Never been to Thailand. I'm just kidding. Hey, quick question. Um, When you say double platinum, how many is that sold? Is that... Platinum's 100,000, right? Or is that a million? Uh, I can't believe you're going to make me do this. Uh, Don't make me sing. I'm just curious. Uh, hold on here. Or is or no? I think in Canada, I think diamond is a million. I think platinum's a hundred thousand, or is it five hundred thousand? Uh, I do. Hold on. <laughs> this is just good stuck. to know because it it kind of puts it into perspective as to like how many albums that actually platinum sold. Platinum platinum albums. Okay. Okay. I don't care about Kiss's album double platinum. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh. Okay. How many rec? How many? <sighs> Hold on, I gotta do this again. I owe uh, two million copies. Oh wow! Yeah, two million copies. So they—it's not bad. They did pretty good. So, <laughs> so thirty million Canadians. Yeah. So that's like, I suck at math. That's like one in what two fifty? Five hundred people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that common to have a Muppets album in your house. I'm sure it's not. But when you factor in this like bunch of twerps that just came in and sold so many albums, it's like, like we're not a big country. 30, 30 million people, two million, two million albums sold. That's pretty good. Yeah. Although, and I assume that's just in Canada, but it could be worldwide. Either way. 
continue. Well, let's talk a little more here Monsieur. about chapter one, A New Beginning, because the Moffats milked the shit out of this thing. So we're definitely going to spend more time here than we will on the other stuff. Um, they actually put out a total of five different versions. And what's interesting is to prep for the show, Brian and I unintentionally listened each to a different version of this album. Now, my <laughs> sister had the Canadian one, which I'm 90% sure is the one I listened to. The U.S. version is what you... Uh, had listened to. And uh, what I thought yes. was interesting about the U.S. was the cover. They're in suits. They're smiling away. They're looking good. They're looking professional. On uh, the Canadian release, they're all just kind of sitting under a tree. They look like they're playing basketball at recess and got tired and were just waiting for the bell to ring. A much more professional look in the U.S. Yeah. There was also a uh, U.K. What? No, I was just going to say, with that picture, they looked like they were like, Oh, I, I, I got to get my juice box for my lunch pail. I'm thirsty. You want to come over and play at my house after school, brother? Brother, we live together, brother. Oh, that's right, brother. We can have Lunchables. Uh, Remember Lunchables? I love Lunchables. Ah, no, you know, I, didn't, I want to say I love the Lunchables. The only thing I loved is the Capri Sun. The rest of it I can take relief. Hey, it's crackers and cheese. Come on. I know, and it's and it's probably it's it's like neon cheese. It probably don't even break down. It's probably still sitting in your stomach. <laughs> I remember seeing a commercial. And it's kind of funny because while it wasn't on the Nashville network, we will get back to that a little bit. It was on uh, TBS, which is kind of like the Nashville network sometimes, but without country music. <laughs> It was for Jimmy Dean had come out with a uh, the the man behind the sausage and the country hit Big Bad John had come out with a series of Lunchables for kids. And he sitting there he goes, my nephew <laughs> took a Lunchable to school with them. It's three crackers and a piece of cheese. That's not a lunch. Jimmy Dean, you get and it was <laughs> meat on top of meat on top of meat. And I'm pretty sure there was some kind of like microwavable gravy that came with it. Oh my god! It's Jimmy Dean's heart attack in the lunchbox. <laughs> it was a freaking feast for these, like you know, twelve-year-olds to eat over the crackers and cheese that uh, Lunchable was offering. So, I have no idea why the Jimmy Dean uh, Lunchable never made it up to Canada, but yeah, it just didn't. One of those things you ask your parents for when they go to the states. Uh, anyway, the other versions of the album were a UK version, a live album that was exclusively released in Spain, and a tour souvenir pack, which was mostly just B-sides and remixes uh, that they sold at their live concerts for their fans. Now, here's something that's weird about the sound. Because like I said, my sister had it, so I did look, go through the liner notes. Um, in it, they put this questionnaire about the band. Kind of something that you would see in, like, Teen Beat magazine. And uh, they kind of use, like, a, uh, a font that looks like handwriting. So it looks like the boys actually filled out this questionnaire when it's just, you know, some record producer typed it in. And, uh, you know, you learn stuff about them, like their favorite colors, their favorite foods, typical stuff. Uh, you also learn that they all have self-imposed nicknames. For example, did you know that Clint is the soul man? I believe that's because he plays the bass. And then Scott. That's racist. Is that how is it racist? How's that racist? Because the movie Soul Man, which is incredibly racist? No. Well, it's like go back to South Park. You know, Token yeah, okay. plays bass. 
you know, everyone assumes that, you know, it's soul music, predominantly black music, soul man, bass, soul, racist. You know, I'd like to argue against the against you there, Brian, but I think you might be onto something. That is a bit of a stereotype that it sounds like the Moffats were leaning into. Uh, also, Scott was known as the wild man because of his long hair and uh, he liked to take that shirt off at basically any venture uh, he could come across. And you know what? We, we, we're going to get into the single. We're going to get into some of the singles for just a bit, but let me jump ahead here. I know you had a real issue with Scott taking his shirt off in the music video for Girl of My Dreams. Yeah. Yeah, because when you factor there, like, I understand they're trying to appeal to people in their same age bracket and maybe some really inappropriate cougars. But um, it's still weird to have a 16, 17 year old kid and his brothers who are all like, what, they're 14, maybe 15. Uh, yeah, all, so they're all like they're less than a year younger than them. And they're all in their like jammies and wearing like no pants <laughs> laying on this bed. Very like. <laughs> Jammies. Sorry. Well, they're in like, like, like you know, like really uh, baggy jeans and stuff like that. Like what? Like what kids wore at the time? No, no. There's one. There's parts of the music video where they're laying on a bed. Yeah, I know that. But they were wearing jammies. Is what I was trying to say. They were. Bring it up. They're in their pajamas. But when you say jammies, I think of like flannel. Right, sorry. They're, Onesies they're like, with dinosaurs all over them. You're right, sorry. Scott is wearing these, like, silk blue boxers, and Dave's wearing these, like, red pajama bottoms that look like silk, and the other two are wearing... I think one's just wearing gym shorts, completely... The drummer's That's going... That's probably uh, to wear the gym shorts. Just going completely against the, the rest of them. Because <laughs> he's like, I'm the drummer, I dress more casual. Um, but yeah, they're, they're in their beds, and they're just, like, making, like, bedroom eyes at the uh at the camera it's just the whole thing screams of creepy borderline pedo stuff correct me if i'm wrong in that video but isn't bob also like playing a snare drum while he's in bed like aren't well, they he's all just like, kind of looking up and singing he's just kind well, of tapping away on a snare drum like while they're looking up or do i have that he's, wrong no he's he, you're partially correct. He's okay. got the sticks and he's kind of like playing on his pillows. Like he's kind of just like tapping along on the bed. But uh, Clint's got the bass in his bed. Oh, okay. And uh, I think the one's just singing. I don't think Dave's doing yeah, fuck all. Yeah, I don't all. make I think Dave haul in his fucking keyboard. <laughs> Although, <laughs> if, if you ever watch any Matt and Kim music videos, yeah. there's one where they're in a bed and he's just playing it on his bed. Because <laughs> so, he's got a keytar that can work, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I wish the Moffats had thought ahead and gotten Dave a keytar. Uh, but anyway, after uh, they decide to sexualize the boys, uh, we also learn in this questionnaire about their favorite bands at the time, which is always interesting to me. Now, no country acts were unveiled in their favorite bands list, but uh, Metallica and Bush were the most popular of their picks. They're big into Metallica and Bush. Uh and this was the biggest cop-out of them all. When they asked Dave who his favorite band is, you know what he responded by saying? I like them all. So there's Dave. You know, he likes every single singer in existence. I'd like to say that that's annoying, but I mean, at least he tries to keep an open mindset. Do you know who I can't stand? is people who are just like... Whatever's on the radio, or I just, I don't like music. I just can't wrap my head around it. I grew up listening to so much music that for someone to say music has no impact on them, I'm like, what, were you born without a soul? Totally. Totally. I know what you mean. Or the, My big one is, music is just background. Ugh, that gets me a lot. 
when people say if, that. If music is background to you, then you just have no joy in your life. Unless you get joy out of doing math yeah. equations like Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. I remember, while you're putting it out there, that used to be a thing, too. There was at least one or two dates I had where there was no second date because they said that eh, music is just background. One, though, was with a girl. When I told her I liked Bruce Springsteen, she started laughing at me. She's like, I'm sorry. What? I just picture him in that like jean jacket with those sleeves and that bandana. He looks so stupid for the eighties. And I was like, How dare you? How dare you? I got so mad. <laughs> it's funny. Last summer I dated somebody and there was a similar thing. Yeah. I had to I had to sell I had to sell her on why he was such a sexy man. I know. And she's just like, Okay, he doesn't do anything for me. I'm like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> if I was a girl I, in the eighties and nineties, I would have been all over that. Oh, um, who wouldn't want but, to tap uh, that? Uh, that's America's ass right there. Exactly. Yeah. Before Captain America, that was America's yeah, ass. Springsteen. <laughs> but actually, similar to you, I had a terrible date with uh, somebody over and music was i mean everything like she was a smoker i was not a smoker she was a big metalhead and i'm trying to tell her on the wonders of uh or i'm trying to sell her on the wonders of sky that's a tough sell on like, metalhead <laughs> and i'm like sky you don't like ska? she's like first of all i had to tell her what ska was yeah. She's like oh, oh that's that shit i was like oh <laughs> it was just uh right from the jump it was a bad day <laughs> you know if they like you enough They'll eventually try to humor you on the ska. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I've, as I've gotten older, when they just dismiss you. That's not exactly fun. Uh, that hurts. Well, yeah, it's because it's a good indicator of how dismissive they'll be in the relationship. But yeah. uh, uh, as I've gotten older, I've just like, you know what? You like what you like. As long as like, if I'm playing it, as long as you're not screaming at the top of my uh, your lungs just trying to get me to change the channel like some crazy infant child, then that's fine. <laughs> but you don't have to like what I like. I don't have to yeah. like what you like. Just respectfully disagree. But there's, and just There is a thing, be though, it. about being dismissive of music that can can't get you. You know, it's, it's, it's what are we going to talk about now? That kind of thing, you know? <laughs> anyway, hey, well, you know what? Let's talk about the man who produced this first album, because we haven't even gotten into the singles yet. Uh, Glenn Ballard, and this proves that Frank Moffat had some connections behind the scene. Uh, when the family was living in the U.S., um, oh, shit, I fucked Hey, before you start uh, talking about this Frank Ballard fella. Glenn Ballard. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking of the uh, the old crank that used to like own the Leafs. Harold, oh, Ballard. Harold Ballard. Yeah. Um, anyway, do you did you do any actual research on the Moffat's dad? Like, what was he doing? I when did not they do enough research kids? on the Moffat's dad. I really should have got, do, dove into Frank. I decided to keep it to the four, you know, members of the Moffats. But no, I well, I didn't I, really get too much intel on uh, Frank Moffat. No, I only ask is just because, like, right from the jump, this guy seemed to either had a horseshoe up his ass or just some, like, weird connections to get these kids in all the right places. Is this isn't a horseshoe up your ass, though, when you've taken your children and made them into a family band and you try to sell it in the cheesiest market in the world of Branson, Missouri. I don't think that's a horseshoe up. It's a horseshoe up his ass. His wife had triplets. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really think that that's a horseshoe. That's an easy product to sell. I mean, it is and it isn't. Sometimes just getting the foot in the door to try to sell it to some of these people is hard enough. 
But maybe, I don't know, maybe country is just much more open-door policy with trying to sign newer talent. I don't know. Well, here's one that's going to scratch your head. Glenn Ballard did not come from a world of country. He was involved in recording and writing the Michael Jackson albums Thriller, Bad, and Dangerous. And then he won two Grammys for co-writing and producing Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. But this guy ain't no slouch. No, and, and you can hear that he has a good grasp, uh, an extremely good grasp of pop music when he put this album on. Because I, I'll admit it, when I put the album on, I was like a little bit kind of like, all right, because it was like Wild at Heart, I think was the first song that came on, and Scott's singing about being a free spirit, and I'm like, okay, this is pretty fucking cheesy. Okay, well, it <laughs> sounds kind of cool. It's upbeat, all right, whatever. And then I believe it was the Ska song. And then I was like, okay, maybe a C plus of, uh, on the ska song, but I'm like, uh, I'm a ska aficionado, so uh, I, I have a higher standard, but eh, not a bad job here, boys. And then by the time I got down to Miss You Like Crazy, it was just, oh boy, the Moffats, Reliving 98, <laughs> big time nostalgia wave hit me. And then after that song, I was like, wait a second, I'm listening to the fucking Moffats. <laughs> And uh, the the bells and whistles that Ballard uh, layered onto this uh, album kind of started to wear a little bit thin on me. Well, when when I first put the album on, uh, because I had the American version, I had the song Until You Loved Me that yes. came on. And it's, it sounded like they were ripping off the Spin Doctors. It was very mid-90s. Um, and then... It went into misery, and then Miss You Like Crazy was track three. And I didn't get to the ska song till the, like the middle. It was track oh, seven. Okay. Well, how, how did that wave hit you? Did you get hit with the nostalgia wave? Because it sounds like they the version you had led off with some pretty well-known singles. Yeah, it uh, it did. Because that was the thing. When it got to, like, uh, Girl of My Dreams, I was just like... I was bobbing along a little bit because I was, I was thinking about it. But I was also having memories of me yelling at the TV because Scott was wearing what looked like a girl's jacket. <laughs> Yeah, you know what's kind of funny is okay. His had like has like big lapels on it, but I do have a leather jacket that's the same uh, color as that. Except uh, there's no belt, and uh, it's kind of like I'm ashamed to admit this. It's a bit of a members only jacket. (laughs) It's one of those ones that collar with the little tab, and like it. It's a good jacket. What do you mean members only jacket? Members only jacket. They've got the collars where it's like they got the two snap buttons on the one side and then the other collar has like this little tab that comes over and it's got a button on it and then a zip uh, pocket on your uh, like on your left over your heart almost. It zips up. There used to be called members. Yeah, I've got got one of those. But the same color as Scott's jacket that you were so uh, offended by. No, it's it's only because it's the it's it's supposed to be like a biker jacket because it's got the like uh, this almost like the strap that kind of goes around the neck that you can like kind of pop open for like when if you put on your helmet and everything because that's like I think that's the look and then most bikers have something for their neck that they can clip over right yeah um, but his was just open and it was tanned and it was like one size too small and. It just made him look very, with the long hair. Like, there's. Do you remember if you watched the video? Because that, uh-huh. that was my early before before I started torrenting the album and I, I listened to the whole thing. I rewatched those music videos and there's a <laughs> shot of them walking down the street together and it literally looks like they're walking with a girl. <laughs> but it's Scott. It's the lead singer who's singing about the girl yeah. of his dreams. Maybe the girl of his dreams was him. See, I could see you writing a self-involved song like that, but you're the best, but you're just the best person you know, but it's about you. 
All right, let's rapid fire go through these singles, shall we? I, I, you know what? I won't spend too much time on their chart positions or anything like that. But we'll start. We'll kick it off with "I'll Be There for You." Dave sings this one. I like it. It's simple for, formula. Formula. Ah, second time through, formulaic. and I still can't pronounce this fucking word. Formulaic. There we go. But it's got a big chorus in the na na nas, which I always enjoy. I got no problem with this one. Yeah, like I can see them uh, when they were doing it live. I could see the fans having a good time with the na na nas. Uh, again, uh, my gripes with the music video. Well, let's talk about those music videos because outside of. Uh, Till uh, till you love me, uh, until until you love me. Um, outside of that one, the rest of the music videos off of this are so low rent, and we've seen you know Maestro and um, Caroline Ra- Crush had some the great videos. Had some great musicals. Caroline Crush had some great. Ones. Matthew Goodman had some great ones. You know there were some great music videos at this time that Canadian artists were putting out. These videos suck. These yeah, videos I'd, look like they are done on such a cheap budget, and they sold two million records. I like, just don't know if maybe maybe they put more money in marketing and promotion in the videos, and so they didn't have as much, or maybe they were just keeping it low concept. So they're like, wow, there's no need to spend money here. Like even could, the like, video could be, for but, like there's plenty. The, there's a low concept. You know, we talked about this a few weeks ago from the Godzilla soundtrack, The Wallflowers Heroes. That's a that's low true. concept video. It's a girl going down to get a quart of milk except Godzilla's rampaging the city as she does it but still <laughs> still it's low concept that, that's true I'm sure they spent a hell of a lot more money on that one than they did on any of these Moffat videos well the video for what's it called crazy that one was a little bit better you know, I've never seen that one it's just them playing in like a garage or like a warehouse kind of thing but it's you know better camera work it looked a little crisper it's uh yeah it just it looked like it was just better shot maybe it was maybe it was just whoever they got to direct that just and his their crew was just garbage well i should put it out there that, that was also a european only single so i don't know maybe the canadian maybe the loony went a little further in the uh in the uk maybe yeah but uh yeah the video for the the hell's that song called the na 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 one I'll be there for you. I'll be there for you. There it is. He says it like 20 Um, times. I should remember this. (laughs) That video is so stupid because you get the girls, you know, as girls did in the 90s, watching the boy bands in a little slumber party, having their little popcorn, and that's fine. But then you get the other girl who's like friend zoning this little Melvin with glasses. He's like, (laughs) like, this little Melvin, as you say, with the popcorn or whatever. You really hate him. (laughs) He's just like. I See, does he, does you, he doesn't remind you of an if old, of, of to, a younger you, does he? No. I didn't wear glasses when I was there. No, that's fair. Those are a new thing. Um, but if I was trying to pitch woo to a young lady when I was a young man, I definitely would not be trying to watch the fucking Moffats because, A, even if I did get anywhere, she would just be thinking about the Moffats. And B, it's not exactly sexy music to set the mood. But yeah, he's just sitting there with his popcorn in his lap like, oh, I hope maybe I can do her homework for her one day and maybe she'll marry me. That guy's a friggin' plug. Well, who knows? Maybe it'll work. <laughs> or maybe we, we, was... we don't see the ending of this video. Maybe he did the pot, the wiener in the popcorn trick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how young do you have to be to know that trick? 
has that trick ever worked for anybody ever? I feel like it works in the world of adult cinema. That's about it. Yeah. Up next was uh, Miss You Like Crazy, which I can say is currently featured in a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial up here in Canada that introduces the new angel to the old angel. So there you go. Canadians will yeah, know I what we're talking about. Because they brought yeah. the old angel back as like a, uh, what's it called? Changing of the guard, if you will. Yeah, it's kind of a nice thing to give the new angel a little bit of cred before the old angel retires. I think I told you my sister has the original Philadelphia cream cheese ladies autograph. That's such an <laughs> it's obscure. It's like, it's like if uh, one of us got, uh, what's his face? The guy you used to work with, with the glasses, Matt. Uh, Matt Hayes? Matt Hayes, you got his autograph. <laughs> you walk around downtown Hamilton, certain areas, and you see someone over the age of 60, ask them if they have a Matt Hayes autograph. Chances are they do. Or uh, he, Rock and Ray Michaels. He hands those things out like hotcakes. Oh, yeah. Rock and, except they won't know who Rock and Ray Michaels is. You mean short man with the beard. Yeah, I got his autograph. <laughs> All right. That's, what, that's, how un, that's how unimportant Rock and Ray Michaels is. Matt Hayes, on the other hand, big deal. Big Hollywood tan. <laughs> um, now, let's uh, talk about the Miss You Like Crazy. Uh, so that's, that was where the uh, nostalgia hit me with this one. remember never liking it when it came out but i certainly liked it a lot more this uh this last time listening to it i don't know it was all the perfect pop elements of the 90s kind of rolled in there to one and uh, the key change if you'll notice on this album not only are they big fans of the words girl and baby but they're big fans of key changes so uh if you're gonna drink while listening to this album have a drink every time there's a key change every time they say girl or baby and uh well you probably won't remember any of the songs after miss you like crazy yeah you'll get nice and schnickered you know what i'll try to do it for the uh, social media before we release this episode to take a highlights video of oh, yeah, me playing like, the uh the chapter one uh drinking game yeah it's it's for the instagram in air quotes ted just wants an excuse to get drunk <laughs> it's for the instagram brian sure tell that to your wife <laughs> i'm going to we'll see if it works We'll see if, people, on the if this is edited out of the podcast, then it clearly did not work. If this stays in there, and a lot of other people did the uh, Moffat's drinking game this weekend, then hey, more power to me. Refresh my memory, though. When did it... Uh, where does the key change occur? Like, what part? It's towards the end, because it kind of slows down. I miss you like crazy. They all go way up with it. That's just the tone. I don't think the key changes, Ted. Ah, pretty sure. Pretty sure the key changes. <laughs> That's just the, like a crescendo. That's just building the song, but I'm pretty sure it stays in the same key. But what the hell do I know? I barely pass music class. But. <laughs> hey, you know what? what if, if that video plays, people will call me out if I got key changes wrong. So, well, we'll see what happened. Uh, Girl of My Dreams, we already talked about. Um, a couple things I just wanted to throw in there. Did you know that they performed this song on the Anthony Anderson basketball sitcom Hangtime? I did not. I loved Hangtime back in the day. <laughs> and I, I've tried to actually find torrents and stuff to see if it uh, holds up like a lot of those shows do not. Cause yeah. They overact and uh, the melodrama and everything is just so horrendous. And the, the comedy is so lame. But uh, 
I'd, I'd give uh, Hang Time another chance. I feel like California Dreams would not age well. I feel like it would be terrible. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen some California Dreams in uh, the recent years and uh, does not have the same uh, the same uh, lure as it did when we were younger. Uh, but one thing I remember about Girl of My Dreams is, A, for whatever reason, it only hit number oh, four, not number four overall in the adult contemporary charts, which is a pretty good ranking considering... You know, that's what most of the radio plays is Adult Contempo up here in Canada. Uh, but I remember this being like their most popular song, Girl of My Dreams. It was everywhere. But I also remember really like, and I know you did this because you talked about doing it, doing it during the Ill Scarlet episode. When you don't like a song, how you kind of sing it in a mocking way. <laughs> yeah. I would do this with this song all the time because, again, Scott Moffat, you know, he was young. He was the apple of every girl my age's eye. He had stupid long hair with blonde streaks in it, uh, showed his bare chest in every video, liked the same celebrity as me. He was all in a Nev Campbell, just like me. That pissed me off. Uh, so I, I kind of fixated some anger on him. And uh, he kind of had a few... Not speech impediments, but kind of vocal things that he did when he sang. Like so, a like crutch or ticks. Yeah, something like that. Like instead of saying sometimes, sometimes, you know what I mean. Like it was kind of like that. And I know I, I don't know, I, I sound odd. And also, like for all we know, that could just be a out west kind of accent or something like that. Maybe that's a. Well, it, what it probably is is a conglomerate of Yukon, <laughs> Alberta, Branson, Missouri, Nashville, all melded together. Maybe. Yeah. But I would take those and I do, I'd do. i sing the song in almost this Adam Sandler voice. So, you want a girl of my dreams and my heart. I barely um, <laughs> I would do that to make fun of it. And uh, so I kept thinking that Scott actually sounded like that for years and years and years. I listened to it back on the record, and, and no, he doesn't sound like that. Yeah, also, I, was, I was driving a couple weekends ago. I was driving around, and I was listening to it. I'm like, you know, Ted is a very spiteful little man. <laughs> He's so wrong about that. You know, in, my, in our friend group growing up, I was the one with the rage, temper, and the spite, yet you have just as much, if not more, spite and anger than me. You're just better at hiding it. Well, I think my rage and anger is more for things that are understandable to be ragey and angry about. I'd look at you cockeyed and you'll be ready to punch me in the face. <laughs> okay? I think that's what it is. There's certain things I know will get you riled up. And I'll do them just to say, hey, hey, look at this. Look at this. Do you remember the time I decided to call you Ben instead of Brian? Yes. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah, you weren't too happy with that, now were you? It took me all of, like, three times. I think by the third time, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? What is this? <laughs> and then Tom comes in, Benjamin! Like, well, three I mean, hours the, later. The joke was uh, old at that point. Yeah. Or anytime I wear a scarf, you don't like that. Now as I've gotten older, <laughs> yeah, I'll wear scarves, but I know it's because you were... I, I felt like you were trying to be, like, some, like, hipster doofus or, like, trying to look different. Differentiate yourself. I remember you physically removing stuff from my from my body <laughs> in a fit of rage. Take, take that off! Take it off! <laughs> That's just me for you. Uh, 
Uh, oh, uh, let's move on to Until You Love Me, which was the first song off of uh, the album you listened to, the American version. This was actually chosen to be um, the single for the Never Been Kissed soundtrack. And you can tell that they use some of that Hollywood money on it because it is their best looking video off yeah. of this album. Uh, weirdly enough, I guess Drew Barrymore was sick that week because Danielle Fischel, who plays Topanga on Boy Meets World, was cast in the role as the main girl in this video. And she's not in the movie Never Been Kissed. So I, I just thought that was weird. Topanga, <laughs> underpants. Uh, <laughs> you just the, make me do these voices, yeah. Are you sure she's not in the movie at all? Maybe she has like I've a background role or something I've seen the movie. I don't remember small. her in there. Like uh. Jessica Alba's in that movie. They could have gotten Jessica Alba as this girl. She would have probably been a little cheaper to get than Topanga at the time. Topanga true, was a hot deal. Yeah. But maybe yeah. that's why they did it. Maybe because, like... She's kind of a name. It's like, yeah, it's a chick from Boy Meets World. Yeah, but I, I, but then they're still showing. And it, I think if they weren't showing clips from the movie in the video, and it was just a straight up Topanga video, okay, that's fine. But they're showing clips to a movie that she's not even in. That's fair. That perplexed What's, me. Uh, yeah, that makes no damn sense. Yeah. What's uh? What would be one of your favorite? Because for various reasons, celebrities will make cameos and music videos what's one of your favorites oh we talked about this the first time through and i almost forgot what it was oh now i remember uh definitely talk about the moffats here donny osmond in a weird al yankovic's video for white and nerdy right. <laughs> he's dancing up a star he's like snoopy on schroeder's piano oh i thought of a couple time more of his life okay what else you got um obviously in the in uh, was it Fat Boy Slim with Seawalk, where he does oh. the dancing? Now is that a cameo? He's like the lead. He's he's the only person in the video. Sure, but I, what I mean is like he's not usually a music video star. He's an actor who just like does, did a random thing. Okay, okay. Fine. that one doesn't count. Uh, if if you watch the video for Giving Up the Gun by Vampire Weekend, okay. Um, it's it's basically this girl is in a tennis match and she basically keeps having to beat more and more people and she first beats Joe Jonas. Okay. And he's like so he's so disgusted, he like shakes her hand and like rubs his like hand on his shirt, like get this dirt off of me. Okay. And then and then she beats Jake Gyllenhaal, but Jake Gyllenhaal's hammered. He's like pounding whiskey before he plays <laughs> her. He's like stumbling all over the thing. It's so funny. Just for a music video, it's very comical. And then Little John is the ref. What a weird video. Yeah, it's uh, and I believe you're a linesman in tennis, Brian. There's an umpire in tennis, I believe. Is uh, line judge, a line judge, whatever. Yeah, whatever the fuck. And, I thought um, of an. Oh, right, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I thought of another weird one. I think it was for the Britney Spears video for like "I'm a Slave for You" or something like that. There's a crowd shot, and in the middle of the crowd shot is Jason Priestley. And he's not dressed like anybody else in the video. He's like wearing a suit. And he's like, hey. And then that's it. He's on screen for like three seconds. And much music used to always point it out. And it made no sense why he was in that video or why he wasn't really taking part in the aspect of the video that everybody else was. It might be the wrong video. But yeah, that was an odd cameo. That's that's one probably for like the worst cameos. I thought of 
Three more. Okay. Uh, James Vanderbeek is in the video for Below by Kesha. Okay. He's kind of, it's almost like this like spy kind of motif where he's kind of like going through this club and it's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and I told you this last week, but I'll say it again. Kyle Gass and uh, what's his face? Jack Black and Foo Fighters Learn to Fly where they're like coke smugglers. Yeah, they but, get everyone all high on the plane. The funniest this. one that it just popped into my head was huh? the Mumford and Sons Hopeless Wanderer with oh, Will Forte. Oh, great, that one. Jason Sudeikis and uh, what's his face? Jason um, Bateman. Yeah, and Ed Helms. Yeah. Where they're the, where they're the Mumford and Sons videos were ridiculously <laughs> hysterical. <laughs> That's Will one Forte of my all-time favorite ham. videos because of those. I mean, you can put Will Forte uh in a movie about the great Irish potato famine. And I think it's hilarious. You know, like he, he, everything he does, is, <laughs> everything he does is great. You know, I watched uh, an interview with him uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was, I think it was Justin Long's podcast. Okay. Uh, first of all, I never noticed Will Ferrell has a very predominant lisp. You need Forte. Talks. Or, or yes, Will Forte. Yeah, Forte. Um, I wouldn't say it's a lisp. He kind of has the, uh, he's got a bit of the, uh, what's his nuts? You do it sometimes too. The uh, uh, Charles Boyle actor, what's his name? Joel Truglio. Which uh, sort of you tuck out of your cheeks like uh, like this a little bit there, and uh, say 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 words that involve a lot of essence like uh, suffered succotash, and, uh, succulent, that kind of thing. That's uh, oh, my wife's gonna hate me doing this impression because she doesn't let me do it at home when I do the Charles Boyle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she says it's terrible, but I, I get to do it. It is quite terrible. <laughs> we'll side with your wife on this. Uh, but also, he is, if if you ever become friends with Will Forte, don't expect a timely response in a text message. He's literally going through his phone with Justin Long. He's like, I am terrible at getting back to messages. <laughs> he's, here's one from a year and a half ago. I'm in town this weekend. We should grab drinks. Let me know. And he's like, this is a dear friend of mine. Jeez. Does he talk like that in the thing? And this is a dear friend of mine. No, I'm just he handing up the died. Will. Okay. <laughs> I'm just handing up the Will Forte impression. But uh, no, yeah, he's just. Now, I don't know if it's because he was in the midst of being like working on a project and he was yeah. unavailable or if he just some people. Are just very unreliable and just don't check their phones. But well, all I got to say to you, Brian, is good luck uh, editing this podcast because we're not even like halfway through. <laughs> One more I do single all to the go work over. Anyway. Why stop at that? One more single to go over here. Uh, Misery, which peaked at uh, number eighteen and was featured on the movie soundtrack, teaching Mrs. Tingle. Misery is what I feel. Final single off of this album. It was only on the U.S. version. Uh, another really stupid low-rent video and an excuse for Scott to show off his abs because they're like, I believe they're on Toronto Island or something. And I remember the weird part of the video was a cop, a traffic cop gets his foot run over by a car and just is like, oh, 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 when he should be like screaming in pain because your foot is broken. And yeah, then, that's, that's our friend Mike does an impression of you whenever you stub your toe, or you just ham it up like you got your foot run over. You're like hopping around, like owie, 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 owie. Don't say you're owie, baby. Do I say owie? <laughs> I don't say owie. I'm not Martin Prince. <laughs> that's just Mike's impression. Jeez. Um, 
But anyway, then the video happens. It's a nice sunny day during the verses. And then like a thunderstorm hits during the chorus and Scott's covered in rain and his, his shirt's halfway off. Boy, <laughs> the man liked to take his shirt off. Hey, Ted, speaking- is this just a... Is this a bit of insecurity because he's a bit more of a fit Freddy than you when you and I were chubsters when we were in middle oh, school and high school? Put it this way. Put it there. Brian, no, not at all. Okay. Who was the king of taking off his shirt back in middle school and high school? I'm much more nervous about it now than I was then. I'd find any opportunity to take my shirt off. In fact, <laughs> I remember doing a drama presentation and took my shirt off. And one of my notes I got back from the teacher was, still don't understand why you took your shirt off. <laughs> Didn't further anything. You just took your shirt off. <laughs> Nowadays is a lot different. Nowadays, I'm actually more keen it's at true. My shirt on. In our when our grade twelve grad video, when they were filming, they're trying to get everyone doing something funny or whatever, like yeah. a little wave to the camera. You tore your shirt, your undershirt, your white undershirt. Yeah, yeah, I did. And then they, they, they. I was trying to do a Hulk Hogan. Because he'd just come back to WWE. You know, Hulk Hogan, ah, he always rips the shirt before he goes down to down to the ring. I was trying to do that. And then someone got in their ear that I was trying to do the Incredible Hulk. And they put a green tinge on the whole thing. <laughs> and I also did this, ah, they, just, they, they just missed the point. Different Hulk. Wrong Hulk. Anyway, uh, speaking of taking off your shirts, one more thing about Scott Moffat taking off his damn shirt. Oh, my God. Sorry, it's coming up in the script, Brian. This is a natural flow to the conversation here. Okay. When the Moffats did the Much Music Video Awards, I remember how cool the Much Music Video Awards are. Like they take over like several city blocks and they're having a oh, big yeah, party. Oh yeah, it's a party. Yeah. Well, they performed. I believe it was "Girl of My Dreams," and they showed up in these w- just just a very outlandish manner of dress. And I remember. <laughs> I can't remember what Bob wore, but I think Dave had like a Mozart thing going on where he had like a velvet jacket and a puffy shirt. And then Clint's wearing like this long to the floor robe that looks like Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream coat. It's covered in moons and stars and all this stuff. And then Scott looks like he just got back from performing at a bachelorette party. He looks like the naked cowboy from Times Square. He's wearing sequin pants, no shirt. Magic Mike in it. Bow fur vest and a sparkly cowboy hat. That was a little bit too small for his head. I remember them asking him. They're like, well, where where'd you come up with this garish attire? He's like, we got a stylist and the stylist said that uh, you'll be the talk of the MMVH in these clothes. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> not wrong there. How many years later and I'm still talking about it? Definitely made an impression on you. Yes, well then again, I'm going to go back to school. Ha, ha, look at what fools they look like in those outrageous outfits. No one's going to like them tomorrow at school and no one saw. I feel like no one had the, uh, I mean, people probably watched much music a little bit, but no one had the magnetic draw that it did for you. Well, it's because he was obsessive. Because you got to remember, I, my brother's two years younger. My sister's five years younger. So when I'd leave your house after school watching much music, I'd come home to my house and it'd be on. It'd be on all weekend. You know, like all we did was watch much music. And they'd repeat this shit. You people couldn't throw on cartoons? Pardon me? I said you people couldn't throw on cartoons. Actually, I can think of a time specifically when you did not watch much music. (laughs) I was sleeping over at your house and I wanted to watch the Leaf game. And you're like, 
We don't watch hockey right. in this house. We watch cops on Saturday night. You cops, in America, like, cops in America's Most Wanted. That was the Saturday night lineup. He's such a white trash person. You That's such a white the, trash cartoons on Sunday when it was the Simpsons and King of the Hill and cops in America's Most Wanted on Saturday. And then all points what, in between with your, much music. With your Budweiser and your pork rinds? <laughs> I don't think I've That's ever it. had a pork rind. They're okay. Yeah. If you if you ever go on the keto diet, it's a it's a salty snack, but there's no carbs or sugar in it or anything, so it's a substitute. Oh, okay. It's literally just like it's just air puffs, but there's nothing. It's it's better for you than a Cheeto, but although be careful, they're very dry. I got one stuck in my throat. I nearly like heaved from coughing so much. I was like, ah. would you say that <laughs> earning yourself a bag of pork rinds after really obeying a keto diet is, is kind of like winning an award? Yeah, I'd say so. It's kind yeah. of like that's that one thing that uh, takes the, the itch away for more sugar or snacks. Well, I'll tell you, at those Much Music Video Awards that year, the Moffats were given a big bag of pork rinds in terms of the <laughs> Fan Favorite Band of the Year Award. So they did pretty well for themselves there. Far better than they would do for themselves at the Junos, because while the Junos loved them and would always put them up for awards, they never won anything. That year, they lost Best New Group to the Johnny Favorite Swing Orchestra, and I can't wait to do an episode about the Johnny Favorite Swing Orchestra. I brought them up to you the first time we tried recording this. You didn't remember them. Yeah, and I still don't remember them. You know, root beer I, and licorice. Frankly, I think you're making this man, this man I'll go to the candy store. I'll get my candy there. Root beer and licorice. Sometimes a swing It sounds like you're just describing what you see in a candy shop. That's the song. They had a whole bunch of them. Well, they had a full album's worth of them. I don't know what they did after that, but I love the Johnny Favorite Swing Orchestra. We'll, we'll, we'll try to look What was up the album you. called? The, the I think it was called Fat Root Beer and Licorice. What was it called? The Diabetic Fat Kids Wishlist? Well, Johnny Favorite was, he was a bit portly. Uh, there's like 20 of them, so I don't think the whole band was portly, but Johnny Favorite was. <laughs> anyway. They also lost Best Pop Album to Stunt by Bare Naked Ladies, which was... Yeah, it was probably a good choice by the... Uh, yeah, that one was a monster. I will say this, though. They did one better than the Bare Naked Ladies the next year. They weren't nominated for any Junos, Brian. But they got to host the Junos. The fucking Moffats got to host the Juno Awards and play like 12 songs. Who would want to listen to those twerps for three hours? Oh, but, but apparently the Juno Academy. Now, yes, I do have regrets. As we've okay, discussed on multiple occasions... As we've discussed on multiple occasions, the Junos always get it wrong. And they this time they got it well, wrong they didn't with their get host. it wrong there. They, 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 they got it right with Johnny Favorite and Bare Naked Ladies in 98. They no, should have won. Talking, I'm talking about in the past when the certain bands who got passed over. Bands we've talked about on this show who got passed <laughs> over for much crappier bands. And we in the Maestro episode, we did like a five minute rant about how the, uh, the Junos always screw it up. That's and they screwed true. up well, the host. Remember, he had to wait three years for uh, Let Your Backbone Slide to win Best Rap Recording because there was no Best Rap Recording. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, getting back to the Moffats. Uh, yeah, they hosted the show. And actually, I remember watching that. And I remember thinking, ah, uh, what a bunch of cornballs. In the middle of uh, Miss You Like Crazy, Dave got out in the audience and got down on one knee and sang it to his mom. And I was like, what a, what a mama's boy. Not even knowing that they're to his mom. Well, I, I didn't know that the, the parents had gotten divorced, so he probably did miss his mom like crazy, which is actually very sweet and oh, makes me feel geez. sad now. You are such a trash person making fun of Dave. 
disgusting moments. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have more feelings now than I used to. Ugh. You know what's weird, Brian? All of these singles and everything like that from Chapter 1, A New Beginning, and nothing caught on in the States. They did throughout Europe. They did in Southeast Asia, which we're going to talk about soon. Uh, but in the States, nothing caught on, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. They became regular guests on Sally Jessiel and the Maury Povich show during this time. And they got to sing Oh Canada at the 1999 Major League Baseball All-Star Game at Fenway Park. Not a bad gig, especially in historic Fenway. That was the game that I think Pedro Martinez struck out the first five or something like that. Good All-Star Game. Damn it. I just thought of another music video cameo. Well, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. In the... And less than Jake. She's going to break soon. They had the chick from Gilmore Girls. Alexis Bledel. Yeah. But again, it's not a cameo. She's like the main person but like, in the video. A guest spot. Whatever. Cameo is the wrong word. Guest spot. All right. That's fair. Uh, they did some interesting stuff in Europe. One of the things they did was they took this young up-and-coming German teen idol by the name of Gil Othorin. And helped launch him into superstar status in Germany. Uh, they did a duet with him. And that turned out to be his big single. And now he's a big deal in the country of Germany. And both of those guys were uh, included in the European pop supergroup Bravo All-Stars. For the charity track, Let the Music Heal Your Soul. Also included on this track were Aaron Carter, the Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC. So, you know, even though the Moffats weren't. Doing ABC specials with those guys, they, they weren't doing. They were still kept keeping the same company as them in Europe, which you know, yeah. Hello, <laughs> Is this thing on. Sorry, I was looking something up. No, that's. Uh, I mean, the, and that was one of the things that begged the question because they're making these connections with these other pop stars. You think they could have taken them on tour, done like some co-headlining deal? Made, uh, you know, try to get the or have them open for them in the States. I've seen the Arkells a couple of times, and every time they come to they tour Canada, or at least they did a couple of years ago, Frank Turner, the British singer, would open yeah. for them. And then Frank Turner, because he's a bigger name outside of Canada, would take the, uh, he, they would open for him in the States or England. And it would just be a successful show all around. I mean, one thing people don't even realize the they, the hip and Nirvana did that show back in the day where the hip would headline Canada on their tour. Nirvana, Nirvana opened for them and went to the States. It was vice versa. See, that's interesting. Cause I, I figured they would do something like that with Sloan because yeah. they were on the same label for a minute. Yeah. Well, I just know they did it for the hip. They might've done it for uh, somebody else as well. That's cool. Yeah. Shall we, I think that we have really looked under every single rock and stone that there is when it comes to all things Moffitt's regarding Chapter one, a new beginning. Do you think it's time to move on? Hold on. We never f properly talked about the ska song. <laughs> okay. I, I said it was a solid C plus from a scuffishwinato standpoint, but what do you got to say on the matter? Okay. First of all, stop gotta, the ska the, what's, what's the title of the song? I keep calling it that ska song. What's it called? Oh, it's called saying I love you. But for some reason, uh, the love is in brackets when it's written on the album. I don't know why. That's I don't know why so they put weird. things in brackets. But uh, in the middle, the brackets are in the middle of the title. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thanks for confusing yes. us, Stop with the ska puns because you're making me scangry. But uh, 
But, uh, yeah, I remember when you told me, you're like, ah, these fucking Moffats have a ska song. When we were, like, 14, you're like, <laughs> and they're like, it's not even a real ska song. There's synth horns, and it's all bullshit. And, that, uh, and so when I heard it, I, I don't know, it sounded like real horns. They could have been synth horns. But uh, I'll say this. In the years that you and I have tried to form a band, we have never start like, lyrics, melody, chords, and put it all together i have never written a ska song start to finish i've had slapdick chords put together to make a nice little ska groove but i've never made a successful ska song so they got me beat so i can't shit on it too bad can we get back to the pettiness of one ted jessup for a second 14 year old ted jessup for a second here (laughs) so i i I likely did make that up because i listened to it again i think that they, they might have actually used real horns um that was purely because how would you have felt if saying I love you now back then when ska was our thing and the Moffats were who we rebelled against if Teddy and Brian or anything they weren't the Moffats and they were at least saying I love you and it became a number one hit and people were like oh ska like what the Moffats play how would you have felt I mean, I probably would have punched the person in the face, but uh, it also goes to the. It also go. It's a testament to how much of a monster Scott truly was in the '90s in pop culture. Like, I, I, I follow Real Big Fish's Instagram, and they were playing this clip. Uh, a throwback where Carson Daly's wearing like a mod, like like he's in the specials and he's got the pork pie hat. He looks like such a doorknob, but everyone's like skanking and he's like, ah, it's Scott Week here at, uh, on MTV. And uh, I think Real Big Fish was playing. Okay. And, you know, the Boston's were in Clueless. Less Than Jake was in Good Burger. There was another band that was in another soundtrack. Yeah, the Moffats what have never it? been kissed. Not a real ska <laughs> band, Ted. You ass. Uh, no, there's another one. There's another. Uh, oh, basketball. Real big fish. Safe there's um, the ten things I hate about you. Right, that was the other one. No. So they were all over the place. Yeah. No. And and the Moffats jumped on this wagon. But also, I will say that this is the last stamp I'll say on that album. Is it truly is them trying to show how eclectic their music tastes are? Yeah. Yeah. Where. There is a lot of that contemporary pop, but uh, they, they do try their best, you know, they try their best with the ballad. They try their best with a little ska song. Thank God they didn't try to rap. That's all I'll say. But uh, Oh, my God. Because, you know, Scott would have made himself the rapper. <laughs> How God awful will that be? Ugh. Did you know Good. Didi Ramon tried to rap? I did not know that. He he was growing tired of the Ramones, and uh, he's like, and he, I don't want to do punk anymore. I want to branch out and rap. If this isn't a success, I'll quit the Ramones. It was terrible. <laughs> Widely panned, so he quit the Ramones. Well, you listen to, like, uh, Big Audio Dynamite, though, which was the Joe Strummer project. That had quite a bit of hip-hop uh, influence on it. And even some of his Mescalero stuff did. So, yeah, but Joe is know. a chameleon. Didi Ramon is the one-trick pony who plays the, as you like to call, the ass bass. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think is a better bassist, Didi Ramon or Clint Moffat? I don't really know. I can't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Didi's sound was more pioneering with the fast, hard downstrokes, right. but uh, 
I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was slapping the bass very well. I just couldn't. The way it was mixed, I couldn't really pick up a lot of bass. But yeah, there, you can't. Maybe I'm that, giving him too much but, of the benefit of the but doubt. But you know what? You know what? No, that's fair. Because I would say that they all grew as musicians. Come the 2000 release of Submodalities, their second album. And for this, they decided to go to one of their biggest influences. Brian, you know that they love Metallica. So they got the brains yes. behind the Black Album, former member of the Paolas and friend of the show. Hopefully we can say that at this point. Probably we can't. <laughs> Bob Rock, the legendary Bob Rock, uh, produced Submodalities uh, as the Moffats decided to go for a much edgier appeal. They wanted to sound grown up, Brian, and that included new spiky haircuts and some of the most laughable facial hair I've ever seen. <laughs> Brian, do you remember the episode I'll never of Beavis shoot on and facial. Butthead where? But do you remember the episode of Beavis and Butthead where they're watching like that old? I don't know if it was a porno or what it was. Some old movie from the eighties. Dude's got a big beard. <laughs> he just had sex, <laughs> and Beavis and Butthead are like, "Beards are cool." We need to get beards. And so they cut each other's hair and they just oh, glue it onto their face. This, yeah. That's what the Moffats looked like with their crappy facial hair and goatees at this time. Ted, they let's look be like honest. They, I couldn't grow any facial hair until I was 27. Your facial hair was patchy and terrible till you were like mid 20s. Like, no one, I mean, you know, it depends on your heritage. Some people can grow better uh, beards than other people, but. Yeah. You weren't exactly in a place to be like, you're not sitting there clucking your big uh, ZZ Top beard. That's not saying, Look fair. At dirt For like 90% of these episodes, I was rocking a great big beard. And the one week I decided to shave it off, you got to criticize me for not having a beard? Yes, but the difference is, you're 36. Oh, they were like 16. I think they were like 18. A lot can happen for your, for your body chemistry in two years. Regardless, <laughs> you know, you know that when you were eighteen, you could not grow the beard you have today. I, 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 I will say this about their beards. You tell me if you agree with me or not. Okay, two thousand. We're what? We're tenth grade, ninth, yeah, ninth, tenth yeah, yeah. grade, ninth, tenth grade. Okay, you remember me saying, "Ha, you're wearing stupid outfits on the MMVAs. No one's gonna like you anymore," and everyone still liked them. Or, "Ha, you did the caterpillar crawl when you were kids. No one's gonna like you anymore," and everyone still. Well, when I said, ha, you have the stupidest facial hair I've ever seen on a musician. No one's going to like you anymore. I think that did it. I think that that's what killed the Moffats as being the top teeny boppers in Canada. I think there's much more factors at play. A subpar record and some personal turmoil that you're going to go into later that killed the Moffats. Not some diddler style porn stashes and some, uh, some crappy goatees. Oh, and, and I, you know, some modalities was also certified platinum and peaked at number eight on the album charts. So, you know, a lot of people bought oh it. And bang, bang, boom was a number one hit. It actually set the record for the fastest rising song to number one in Canadian history, which it still holds. So, yeah, I guess you some people, I, can, I guess some people still like them. I'm amazed I can actually hear you through the mic when you're just talking out of your ass. <laughs> Come on, we're just trying to have fun here, Brian. Just trying to have fun. I know. That's yeah. Rip on you. Well, let's let's talk about uh, some modalities here. You say it's a subpar album, whereas I say 
it, it, it's I have mixed feelings on it. So you, you tell you, you thought it was subpar. Why do you think it was subpar? My feelings on Scott Moffat are not as strong as yours, but I will say he's at his best when he's not trying to over sing. Yeah. And and you can hear it on tracks like Misery on the first one and uh, and things like that, where he's really trying to like lay it on thick. Um, and in this one, I forget what song it was. It was definitely one of the singles. He's really trying to oversing, and he, he's trying to do. Well, the whole band is trying to do their best Oasis version, and even yeah, in the video, you can hear some Oasis uh, influence here. Yeah, absolutely. He's rocking these orange tinted glasses like Liam always wears, and he's really got that like nasally kind of pitch in his voice. And I'm like, oh, this is just trash. I need a video for just another um, phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I will say I applaud them for trying to go a little harder trying to show more influences with the the rock side a little getting away from the some of the poppy elements aside from like your bang bang boom but um i don't know it's just maybe i didn't listen to it enough but it uh, it wasn't the hit parade of pop of uh of singles that the previous one was that's all well bang bang boom I liked it was like that was the big number one hit off of this. I like Bang Bang Boom. It's a Dave song, and I tend to like Dave songs. I do think it's odd that they went with a song basically where you're saying you make my heart go bang, bang, boom when you're going out of your way to show your audience that you're you got a harder edge now and you're more adult when that is the most bubblegum line that you could possibly have on a recording. Well, and I, I mentioned to you this before and you kind of disagreed with me. Maybe I didn't phrase it very well, but um, I feel like Dave was wasted on this because he's, like you said, he's a better singer than Scott. I feel he didn't like he didn't get to flex any vocal range. He's more just like bang, bang, boom, bang, bang, bang. like he, he didn't actually like he's not singing so much as almost like a hype man. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought Dave had some charm going on in this one. I don't know. Maybe I like the song no, a lot this- more than you did. The song's enjoyable. I have no beef with the songs. I feel like they should have, like, I think they should have given Dave that uh, just another phase song. They should have let him sing that one instead of Scott telling him to take a hike. (laughs) I think you and me would agree, though, that most Moffat songs, especially on this album, because you're right, Scott does over sing a lot. Um, And one of the big things that he tries to show off, and I got to feel like this was maybe a Scott thing. It might have been a Bob Rock thing, though is that they really tried to show off those 90s alternative rock influences that they had. You mentioned Oasis, how Just Another Phase is a real Oasis vibe to it. There was one track on there I told you that reminded me a little bit of uh, uh, Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead. They were doing some Radiohead stuff on that. And uh, they really turn up the distortion quite a bit. They even tried some psychedelic stuff on there, too. So yeah, there was one song there where they rip a nice, like a nice kind of uh, meaty solo. Yeah, and he talks about like taking a pill in it too, which I was like, uh, uh, okay, uh, okay, uh, you guys are getting real rock star on us in a hurry, you know. <laughs> and I made I made this comparison. I think I I don't think that the general audience though is ready for this because yeah. Well, I talked last week, the, the, the first time we tried to record this, I mentioned, compare them to Justin Timberlake. You know, when Justin Timberlake, before, he wasn't, you know, tearing up my heart and then going straight to bringing sexy back. You know, it wasn't that immediate shift 
that the audience had to deal with. There were several albums and years in between that where he carved out that persona for himself. The Moffats were trying to do this in the span of two years, and I know a lot changes in a young man in two years, especially when he's in his teens. But I don't think the audience was ready for that change. No, you're right. It uh, it takes a couple of years to kind of truly cultivate your per- like even look at look look at us who we were when we were 20 versus who we are now yeah very different people i mean there's certain elements of our character that are the same but uh we're very different people than we were when we were 20 tell you there's a guy i work with and he reminds me so much of me when i was 20 so this guy's like 33 not 20 but still <laughs> And I just want to sit him down and go, you're doing it all wrong, man. I made those mistakes. <laughs> don't do these things. People will like you a lot more if you don't do these things. But I, I can't say that to myself because I had to go through life to learn, you know, how to be a gentleman, I suppose. Uh, we should note the other single from this album was Walking. The furthest thing from a gentleman. I'm, I'm a Shall total gentleman. Shall I bring you back to the, the Blue Jays pizza story? <laughs> Blue Jays pizza story? Oh, yes. Blue Jays pizza story. How's this? If there's no alcohol present, I'm a t- total gentleman. <laughs> Does that work? <laughs> Let's say if there's no alcohol or food present. <laughs> We'll go ahead and tell the Blue Jay pizza story. Jeez. What, you want me to tell this yeah, story? Yeah, tell the fucking story. You're not just going to tease it and not right. tell it. So we went to the Jay's home opener one year, and uh, we all got very drunk. Went back to our friend's apartment who lived, like, literally across the street from the Rogers Center. And we ordered a late-night pizza. And when... <laughs> When Ted gets drinking, he really forgets his manners. And uh, so we all take like a slice or two because there's enough for literally a slice or two. I think they got one large between like six of us or five of us. Before we even realized it, we're like, where the hell's the pizza? And Ted's just like cramming slice after slice, scraping the fallen toppings off the box. It's like, <laughs> and he's just like, he's like, yeah, you can eat that sauce. He's just like, doesn't even wait for an answer. He's already like full slice deep in the sauce. He's dunking the whole thing. And he's like, ah, this is good pizza. And he's like, well, I've never even seen anyone eat so fast. And I eat fast. Oh boy. Oh, I'm out of control. Like literally you, you were one step away, like Chris Farley in Almost Heroes, where he's like, hey, I want you to get your own bottle, and he just starts pounding the, the liquor. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, when we were kings, Brian, when we were kings. One thing I wanted to say, though, was I think that Submodalities does contain the best Moffitt's song from between these first two albums. I'm assuming it's better than any other Kitty Bob stuff, so I'll say it's the best Moffitt's song to date, and that's uh, Walking Behind. Just, just forget like best Moffat song. This is just a great song. Dave sings it. It's well structured. I, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I'll have to go back and listen to it because 
I really only did like a pass or two, and I didn't fully retain oh, okay. that album. But also, it didn't help that I was str- I was listening to it on YouTube, and all the songs were out of order. And all oh, things. I so know, was, and you got to deal with commercials and all that jazz, yeah. But uh, I don't care about that. I just wish they were in order, so I can actually check on which song was which. That's all. But walking behind, good shit. Teddy recommendation. Um, at the 2001 <laughs> Juno Awards, the Moffats, you know, they got nominated for a whole bunch of awards, but they, they didn't win any of them. Again, Bare Naked Ladies stood in their way. They lost Best Group of the Year to the Bare Naked Ladies. They lost Pop Album of Year to the Bare Naked Ladies. And uh, Bob Rock also got a nomination for... Um, producer of the year he lost that as well as a gentleman by the name of randy staub who worked on this album he got a nomination for recording engineer of the year but uh, he lost that as well uh but the moffats weren't really focused on canada at this time they were focused on the southeast asian markets like i said they could consistently top the charts in thailand taiwan malaysia indonesia and today have sold more records in the philippines than any other international artist I should say that any non-Philippine artist, the Moffats have sold more records than. That's insane. They're the Beatles of the Philippines. That's so weird. I know. Like certain, it's so interesting to hear stories like that when certain bands has hit this weird chord with certain markets. Um, I told you about the Alexis on Fire story, so I'll just quickly abbreviate. Basically, for years, their fans were hitting them up on MySpace and things telling them, come to Brazil. You got tons of fans here. And I never did just because anyone who's been in a band knows that, you know, travel expenses and all these things, it's such a to-do. So unless they were going to do a whole South American tour, it just wouldn't make sense. Um, So when they did their their first farewell, like I swear, they're going to have more farewells than Kiss or the Rolling Stones when it's all said and done because they're only our age. And they've already like hung it up like twice. I will say the the screaming though does not go easy on the throat over uh, a few years. That's true. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they uh, their final farewell tour they did Canada like ten dates, England and yeah England and Australia, and they did the special one show, not even like a weekend, like back to back nights. That would have made more sense. But they did one gig in South America. They got in. They got the hell out of there. But on their way out of the gig and like there were fans waiting at the airport and they were fans bashing on the van on their way out like it was their Beatles moment they never had it anywhere else and uh, like they sold out ACC and all these other arenas but and the way they do it in South America they have one band no opener everyone's getting the doors open at like 9 everyone's getting drunk till like 1am it's like when we saw Fishbone Um, except there wasn't that stupid crappy band that opened for them who is it, that band? Oh, Sp- Spooky Reuben. Oh, they suck so bad. <laughs> I remember the bald guy in the front row going, Genetic! You're genetic! Fishbones <laughs> would be ashamed of you! Okay, that's hilarious. Yeah, and that's uh, that jackass trying to do this weird like phone bit on the phone. I don't know what the hell that was. I, I guess maybe oh, that was yeah, like production. Str- you did stretch Armstrong doll. When bands break this shit out, it's because they know they got nothing. So they try to put together yeah. bells and whistles to make their live show more appealing. Remember when Jake took us to see that friend of his who was in a blues band and had some pop punk band open before them? And you and I sat there counting all the gimmicks they broke out. They broke like they had four songs. They did like twenty gimmicks. They smashed a keyboard. They played jingle bells. They used wireless amps and ran around the bar and got a drink while they played guitar. Uh, every fucking gimmick you can imagine. 
this band had for a tiny show yeah. in front of like 12 people literally 12 I mean, people I, I applaud their moxie for it but it, it does uh, it's a crutch yeah big time but anyway the only gimmick the only gimmick <laughs> I like is when we see Les and Jake and they have the toilet paper gun and they shoot that in the crowd but you really stole them off its thunder by one-upping them with Alexis on fire in Brazil <laughs> And now, too bad for me, I got nothing to talk about when we eventually do an Alexis on Fire episode, so... There you go. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Do your research. The the Moffins were... Although... I will say this, before... Tell me now about how this city in color is big in Italy or something? I don't know. I will punch you in the throat. Let me finish. Um, No, all I was going to say is Alexis on Fire had their one-off gig in Brazil, and... The Moffats are, to my, to your knowledge, still selling. They're still humongous. Yeah, so they've won. Okay, so relax. (laughs) You know they did a show with Aqua in Shanghai. That was the first ever paid concert by an international artist, and they also performed the first ever outdoor stadium show in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. So all over Southeast Asia, do they sing the name Scott Moffat? Maybe not just Scott. Maybe the rest of the guys too. (laughs) Uh. Now, boys were 18 in 2001, and that's when they elected to call it quits. Now, at the time, they told the media that the reason they called it quits was because they had just been touring since they were five years old. They were about to go to college. They were exhausted. They just wanted to take a break, and they were becoming men now. They were no longer a boy band. They were a man band, and they wanted to kind of carve their own place in the world. However, the reality wasn't uh, as simple as uh, they've confirmed in later interviews. 2001 was the year that Dave came out. Um, And I guess his father, Frank, was quite homophobic. And it caused a lot of friction in the family. And uh, just for their own mental health and Dave's own mental health, they they just decided to take a break from uh, performing altogether. Because I don't think Dave wanted to spend too much time with his dad um, after all these years on the road. And so now... Uh, we're going to jump ahead a little bit because the Moffats would eventually reunite in 2016. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead about 15 years and we're going to talk about the Moffats reunion and then we'll go back and talk about what each individual member of the Moffats was up to. Uh, And I wish that the reunion was more eventful than it was, but it wasn't really. They got together to do a show in 2012 in Hollywood, of all places. That was a Christmas show and decided, hey, let's record another album and uh, give one more round of applause to our fans in Southeast Asia. So that's what they did. In 2016, they were embarked on a reunion tour of Southeast Asia. uh, But Dave decided not to participate. Dave stayed home in Canada. But as a trio, guitar, bass, and drums, they traveled the Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore to sell out crowds. And while they were over there, they signed a deal with Bektero Music in Thailand and announced that in 2017, they were finally recording the follow-up to Chapter 1, A New Beginning. Oh, Brian, get this. You know what it's called? Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Oh. And uh, then Chapter 2 came out in January of 2018. So we're doing this podcast here, and uh, I'm doing my research in chronological order. So I sit there and I listen to chapter one, and you know a lot of big time pop. It's what I remember. the The writing's really, really simple. And then I I noticed the the direction that they were taking the sub sub modalities, 
And I noticed that they really wanted to take themselves as serious musicians and that they were kind of leaning into alternative rock. And so I thought, okay, I wonder what chapter two sounds like. I had actually gotten myself excited for chapter two. Good Lord. Was that a mistake? <laughs> I was, so, I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I was disappointed by a Moffat's album, but I was very disappointed by this album. Only six tracks, and I said it the first time we recorded this. It makes Barry Manilow sound like Cannibal Corpse. I'm so said Brian it makes John Tesh sound like Rammstein it is just a good joke by me boring forget elevator music it's Hallmark card music it is just boring and it's light and it it looks like it'd it'd appear in a commercial for Christian Mingle or something like that like it is just so non-existent it's as bad as the calling, but at least the guy in the calling had a weird deep voice. It's terrible. Yeah, I didn't like the album. Uh, did you get a chance to listen to it? I know I told you I was going to. I was just because twice now you've gone on these rants about uh, how terrible it was. I'm just like, you know what? I got better things to do than to listen to garbage. <laughs> it's part of your job, though, Brian. To get the, get the, you know. I think I've worn myself out. Huh? <laughs> this yeah, you sound the very first, tired. This it's, it's, the it's, first... it's like you just came. You're just like, well, you so know tired. what? That's graphic as hell. But uh, you remember the first <laughs> time we recorded this? We were like winded by the time we got to this point. We we're almost done. It was like a race to the finish. That's what's feeling like again. It's <laughs> a long, well, long it's, topic. It's what's funny is the band that you dreaded doing the most. Like Ted has taken so much time to pull this script together. Um, <laughs> And the band that we're least passionate about, we seem to have the most to say. Yeah. But that's it's like it's 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 like when you go on a date with someone. Sometimes they say you'll better connect with the person that you share dislikes with than you will likes. Well, what's that what's that old expression? There's a fine love between a fine line between love and hate there or something is. like that? Or? Yeah. And because I think when we were kids the Moffats were just everywhere call them the fucking Moffats. You know, we we, we, we we took an interest in them, even though at the time we, we, we didn't, we was just, oh, they're everywhere. Oh, I can't escape them. Well, but that, no, we, there was a general that's interest. Human, that's just human nature, especially celebrity culture in general. Like celebrities that you hate, you seem to be more engaged with and know more about. It's like, yeah. oh, look at this piece of shit. Getting, he can't get a normal cup of coffee like me. He has to go for like this fancy shit. Da, da, da. You know what I mean? Or it's like uh, that's that's true. Co- when you become fixated on that, like I'll tell you, when I was okay, when me and Brian are huge baseball fans, and when the Yankees had that stretch from '96 to 2000, where they won, um, what was it, four championships in five years? I, uh, I could name every player in the Jays, and I can name every player in the Yankees. I knew the Yankees inside and out, even though I couldn't stand them. It's because I was fixated with them. You know what I mean? And I was obsessed <laughs> with disliking them. And I still, I would remember guys who would be on there for two or three games because for a moment I hated them. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
think that's where that comes from. It's not healthy. It's, the, it's not healthy to that feel that line way from about Major League something. Two. What's that line from Major League Two where he's like, "I didn't much care for him uh, when he was playing for Chicago. Yeah. What a difference the new uniform makes." And he's like, "He's still he's a reversed. dick." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're like, um, well, it's like in the, that one episode of The Simpsons where they go to Boston because Homer wants to do a hate vacation. Yeah, um, he goes just to try to hate everything. So some people just get more enjoyment hating things than liking things. And you'll live longer if you don't live your life that way. <laughs> a lot longer. That's why I admire Kevin's. I admire Kevin Smith because he loves to love things, but he just. He's the worst film critic because he's just like, yeah, he just gives too many passes to hot garbage. Well, I don't think that, I think, he was, be, I think he that, was too soft on those Star Wars movies. But I think that you and me have been, have been fair in this episode with the Moffats. I oh, think yeah, that we're, we're giving them a fair shakedown as adults. All right, let's yeah. talk about what they did in their solo career, shall we? Clint and Bob, bass and drums, interchangeable for one another. Mark McGrath Jr. <laughs> and heavy metal hair. Uh, they formed a band called Push that got some pretty high-profile gigs during the Vancouver Olympics. Um, that group changed its name to Hedel, and they recorded an album called Going Down in Flames in 2003. Much like their career. <laughs> the two eventually moved to Thailand, which was a smart Let's move. No, I was giving you the little... <laughs> I even looked at you over the camera and was like, come on, Ryan, say your line. <laughs> but they did the smart move. They're huge in Southeast Asia. So why not go where the fans are? And they moved to Thailand to get right in the middle of everything. They formed a group called Same Same and released an album called The Meaning of Happy in 2016. An absolutely genius move by the two forgotten members of the Moffats. They were invited to host the MTV Asia Music Video Awards. Two kids from Canada hosted the MTV Asia Music Video Awards. And they even recorded a bunch of- Let me ask you this here, Ted. Did you listen to Same Same? Did it really suck suck? I was about to get into that. If the Moffats were inspired by Metallica for some modalities, oh, they were definitely inspired by the work of Same Same for Chapter 2. It is on par bad. You can forgive them to an extent because it was just Clinton Bob doing it. Uh, so you can kind of forgive it for being crappy. Whereas with chapter two, it's all four of them back together. So you can't really forgive them. There's no excuse. Uh, but yeah, it's terrible. It's super light. It is flavorless. It's uh, what's the what's the ice cream the Flanders family eats? On the Simpsons. Wintergreen? Yeah. I'm flavored for me. That's what this is. <laughs> okay. It's terrible. They don't drink ice. They don't eat ice cream. They, uh, what is it called? Ice milk? Yeah. Maybe it was ice milk. Yeah. Frozen ice milk. Something like that. Anyway, eventually, Bob and Clint would relocate to Nashville in 2011. Very lucrative there for songwriters. They started a country music duo called Music Travel Love which I would nominate for worst band name I've ever heard. Eat, pray, love, All much. their band names are terrible. The Moffats is the only one that's any good. <laughs> You're right. That's their name. You're right. That's the only good one. Oh, we got some other gems coming up. Don't you worry. <laughs> but uh, they actually tried to tr turn Music Travel Love into a corporation. They developed a children's network that was called Music Travel Kids and a coffee company 
called Music Java Love. Really sticking to one theme here. And then they released a single in 2016 uh, called Amen for Woman. Women. It's a country tune that I will say is a giant upgrade from Chapter 2 and from Same Same. It's a little preachy. It sounds kind of like a song someone in the second grade would write for their mom on Mother's Day. But it's it's got some character to it, at least. And it's upbeat and uh, got a little bit of chutzpah in it. So it gets a pass from me. Let's talk about Dave Moffat. Dave lived a much more low-key life than his brothers did uh, when the Moffats broke up. He relocated to Winnipeg and attended the University of Manitoba, and his goal at the time was to become an actor. So he actually starred in a Winnipeg-based production of Miss Saigon. Now, Brian, this one burns me. Oh, it burns me. I've been good on Dave the whole, whole podcast. Dave's been my guy from the Moffats. Haven't had an ill thing to say about him until this. In 2005, he competed as a contestant on Canadian Idol and made it to the top 32. I call foul. Do you think they let Chris Kirkpatrick walk onto American Idol? Or the guy that wasn't the guy who rapped in LFO and (laughs) he'd be allowed to do something on American Idol? I'm grasping at straws for other band members here that are forgotten about. Um, I mean, I get your point, but... I guess the first thing is, he wasn't the main singer who sang all the songs. But he was the co-main singer. But okay, he also, fine. Like, so Chris I mean, Kirkpatrick's a bad example. It'd be like J.C. Chazez. Okay. But at the Chazez. same time, too, is I feel like even though he sang a lot, he wasn't like the face of the band. It was always Scott. But uh, He sang their the only thing, number one hit in Canada. But he was always kind of off to the side. Scott was always front row center. That's what I mean. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just pulling stuff out of my ass. Maybe it's blame Canadian Idol. Maybe, yeah, it, maybe it they had a, a I list agree. of... It is the, it's, it's Farley Flex's fault. He's Maestro's guy. But he's screwed up here. <laughs> maybe in the, uh, in the fine print, there's nothing about you cannot have a number one record. <laughs> to, so Ed from like, Baronet oh. and Ladies can show up... Uh, on Canadian Idol one day? Because he only co-sang what, one week? you're saying the Bare Naked Ladies have never had a number one record? No, they have. I'm just saying that... Because he's like the co-lead singer with Steve, is what I'm trying to say. Anyhow, bad example with Stricken from the Record. Never mind. I'm spending too much time on this. Anyhow, he's continuing to live his no, life. I get it, though. It's yeah. uh, The guy's a professional musician, made a career out of it. The, the whole point was for this to get your show uh, as a showcase for yes, you. Yes, it's to be discovered. Uh, You've already been discovered. You're on Charlie Chase's talk show. Maybe he was trying show. to reinvent himself. Maybe he was trying to reinvent himself. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to go to show he can go out on his own. I don't know. All right. Well, but. now he's just kicking it in Toronto. He owns a yoga studio. And uh, actually did his own solo tour of the Philippines after his brothers went there for his own. Thanks, guys, for all the support over the years. So that's nice. Finally, we moved to Scott Moffat, who uh, I've been shitting on the most, giving him the Bill Priddle treatment this episode. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But Scott uh, definitely carved a good path for himself when uh, his career at the Moffats was over. 
He formed a rock band called the Boston Post shortly after the Moffats broke up. Another terrible name. And how about this? <laughs> they, they released an EP in 2003 called It's 99 P.M. That doesn't even make any sense. 2005. I always think of every time you talk about the Moffats and you mentioned Scott, I just think of uh, <laughs> the South Park. That's Scott. He's a dick. Oh, yeah, from Terrence and Philip. <laughs> yeah. He seems like a nice guy in interviews. I'll say yeah, that. Um, he told reporters in 2005 that he was working on a solo uh, release and even released advertisements on his website for an album called The Allegory of the City. Pretentious much? Anyhow, that eventually materialized for free on his MySpace page. So if you still got MySpace, you can find The Allegory of the City. Now, he later joined Clint and Bob in Thailand, and this is when things... Hey, hold on a second, Ted. Yeah. Is it is there, their album an allegory for the city because it's a hot, noisy mess that no one enjoys? That's pretty good. I'll give you that. I like that. <laughs> uh, but, he, no, moving to Thailand to be with uh, Clint and Bob, this turned out to be a genius idea for him because this is where he found his true calling in music, Scott Moffat. It was producing... He is the Bob Rock of Thailand. He's credited for being the brains behind the country's biggest rock group, a group by the name of Slot Machine. And numerous other rock and heavy metal acts in Thailand credit their careers to Scott Moffat. The man is a legend over there. So he decided to bring his... He would be such a tastemaker. I know. Well, he's, he's making it happen uh, stateside now. He moved to Nashville along with his brothers, and he hooked up with a fellow by the name of Luke Combs. Luke Combs, big-time country musician. Uh, kind of reminds me of Bob Seger a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Brian called me prejudiced the first time that we did this because I assumed, because, you know, Luke Combs is on the heavy side and has a big beard... Uh, He'd be a big fat party animal and write songs about drinking beer and stuff like that. But it's mostly it's mostly ballads that he does. Um, and Scott produced Combs' debut album, This One's For You, which topped the U.S. country charts. And the follow up, What You See Is What You Get, sold even more than This One's For You. I guess be careful what you wish for is all I meant when I said what you see is what you get. And it earned Scott the Producer of the Year Award at the American Country Music Awards, the Canadian Country Music Association Awards, and the CMA Awards. Scott Moffat has hit the pinnacle of his career as a producer, and he's not even 40. I repeat, he's well, not I even mean... 40. <laughs> he's sitting, I gotta tell um... you what I'm staring at right now. We're doing a video call. I'm talking about the Moffats. I'm looking over at Brian. He's untangling his, like, split ends. <laughs> Instead of paying any attention to the podcast. I get it. It's late. This is the second time we've done it. I get it. We're just trying to get it done now. I understand. I've already gotten yelled at by my wife. But, Brian, put your head in the damn game. We're almost there. I was literally, I was literally about to say... I was, you know, I was bringing it back to sports. Think about how many people who, I mean, some had better careers than others, but they were much more productive as a manager kind of behind the scenes than they were as a player. Yes. Like, uh, 
most of the what the managers now that would probably grow in as Hall of Fame managers, you look at their baseball statistics as players, they were hot garbage. Oh yeah. yeah. Or they were just like very mediocre. Yeah. I don't I know Bobby I Cox think... who won fourteen straight championships with the Atlanta Braves. Oh sorry, champion division titles of the Atlanta Braves. His big league he had one season in the big leagues with the Yankees. He was a third baseman, barely hit his weight. And be, he's a Hall of Fame manager now. So yeah. it happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Terry Francona. Niche. Yeah. Baseball Tony La Russa. He was a terrible baseball player. Great man. I was, was going to bring him up. I was yeah. trying to remember. Like, Was there any players you can think of that would go in? Although here's the other thing, though. They're, now there's this next generation of players that are coming up as managers. Some of them were good players. Well, yeah, but that's been like that through baseball history. If you look at the World Series, uh, there's several in World true. Series Robinson. where it's been um, player-manager versus player-manager. That's true. You know, all the all-time greats had stints Larry Bird did it once. Larry Bird was managing seasons. the the, uh, the uh, Pacers in uh, in the NBA, and you're a coach in the NBA. You're not the manager. Baseball's the only yeah. sport where you're the manager. But, yeah, and then sometimes you'll do it and you're terrible. Like little Wayne Gretzky. Terrible yeah, coach. Terrible. Great player. All right. What were your? You got any final thoughts here on the Moffats? I think it's pretty clear they didn't bring it in in the U.S. because of oversaturation, but they did everything else a band could possibly do, especially at that age. Well, it's you know, we we always talk about you know maybe there wasn't a scene carved out for them, like, and there really wasn't much of a pop scene in Canada at the time when you factor like the what the states had. And what England had with, you know, Robbie Williams' resurgence, All Saints. Uh, and then what was going on with pop at the time, just in Europe in general. You know, like Euro beats were really coming in hot in the late 90s. Uh, you know, Darude, Sandstorm, uh, all this shit. Um, so it, it's hard to carve out that piece for yourself. But, um, you know, good, good bands, they, you know, longevity and they pivot. They, they make adjustments and they kind of go, they play into their wheelhouse and they, to get longevity, they stuck to the Asian market and as long, and it was lucrative for them and it's, and it's given them all a second life. So, I mean, kudos to them for sticking around. They could have just been another relic of the, the pop riddled late nineties, uh, with, you know, cocaine and that's true. Uh, they broken all, dreams. They all kind of, you know, stuck to the straight and narrow and they've, they've got good lives now. So more power yeah. to them. Uh, what's it called? And uh, you know what, Scott Moffat, I apologize for my behavior as a uh, snotty 14-year-old uh, who thought he was incredibly entitled and thought that, literally thought in my head, a scenario where Nev Campbell would have to choose between the two of us as to who was going to be her man. Man, we think dumb things when we're kids. Anyway, we're going to move on. Next week is going to be a weird episode of Canada FM. We are going to be covering one central band and then a whole bunch of freaking bands that branch off of this band. Brian, we're going to be talking about the Philosopher Kings as well as Jarvis Church. And I know people are excited for this one. Prozac. They all wind (laughs) back to the Philosopher Kings. Doing my research this week, we could make a killer mixtape just by songs members of the Philosopher Kings were associated with. It was basically a hot a hotbed for future producers and session musicians, the Philosopher Kings. And we're going to talk really? about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's 
weird. I, I don't have a lot of information yet about the band. I've got a lot of information about the members and what they've done since the band, but right now I just got their music, so I'm going to really have to dive deep. No more just Wikipediaing it for me and uh, pull out some info about the Philosopher Kings because it's, uh, it's an interesting story and definitely a, a collective of supremely talented people. So until next week, I'm Ted. I'm Brian. I've run out of gas. I think we I'm both Ted. have. Two times through the loop on this. It's 9.30 at night. Well, it's almost we 10. Have spent, we have literally spent almost five hours discussing yeah. The Moffats between the first episode and this one. That is more time than anyone's thought of The Moffats in the last 20 years, unless you're from Asia. Well, you know, Brian, I like to think that at the end of all these episodes, we become experts on the band in question. And I'm proud to say I I'm, an, listened to half the I'm an expert on the Moffats now. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. What did their dad do? See? Uh, he, you know, was, he, he did Delana Moffat. <laughs> Rimshot. Hey, we'll end it there. I'll be all week. I'll be all week. <laughs> Darlena. I even got her fucking name wrong. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, expert. <laughs> All right, later, folks. You think folks, you're the, co- the Moffat's cock of the walk. You are cock of nothing. 